Coming soon to own on video cassette. Y2K front, despite all the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team's debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains, just how many box office records can one movie break? You take the blue pill, the story ends. I see dead people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. Welcome back to 1999, the year that rocks cinema. My name is Jared Stossel. My name is still Andrew Tucker. <laughs> and this is the podcast where we are doing a deep dive of nearly every film released in the year 1999, getting down to the core of why this was one of the most influential years in all of cinematic history. And if you thought our episodes were long before, oh boy, are you in for one today. Um, no, this is one that I've been personally very excited about since the second that we talked about it obviously this show is us seeing a lot of movies and things that we hadn't necessarily seen and talked about as we kind of talked about in our prequel episode to this whole series but this one i'm incredibly familiar with this is 1999's universal pictures the mummy see and you're incredibly familiar with it this one's brand new to me yeah watching it for this podcast was the first time that i've seen this movie yeah so, and I, I'm excited that you got to watch it. Whether you like it or not, I was, I'm just happy that you got to see it, like, for the first time and experience it that way. But we'll get into all of our opinions and stuff later. This is, like we said, this is a big episode. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into it. this immediately. Let's set the scene. The Mummy was written and directed by Stephen Summers. It was released on May 7th, 1999. It stars Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz, Arnold Vosloo, John Hanna, and Kevin J. O'Connor, among numerous others in a really incredible ensemble cast. A brief rundown from the IMDb official summary. At an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Hamanoptera, an American serving in the French Foreign Legion accidentally awakens a mummy who begins to wreak havoc as he searches for the reincarnation of his long-lost love. And now, Andrew for the rundown. All right, man. So we kick things off in Thebes. It's 1290 BC. And the drama is high. Why? Because a high priest named Imhotep is stooping a young lady named Anksu Naman, who happens to be the mistress of the pharaoh Seti I. This makes the pharaoh very upset He, You see what oh, I, I did hate, there? You I like that? You, so you like much. that? I know God. how much you love puns. God damn it. But before he can do anything about it, Imhotep and Anksu Naman straight up murder his ass. Kill him. Go on. When Seti's guards show up, Imhotep turns tail and bails, while Anksu Naman stays behind and kills herself with this nasty stab to the stomach. And you see it in shadow, and it's really cool and spooky. See, she was willing to do that 
because she knew that Imhotep was going to steal her body, take it to Hamunaptra, which is the famous city of the dead, and perform a spooky resurrection ceremony. But that plan didn't work out too hot, because Seti's guards captured Imhotep and all of his little mummy friends and buried them alive. And if that wasn't bad enough, Imhotep was sentenced to immortal agony with something called the Hamdai Curse, and he was buried with a bunch of flesh-eating scarabs. And I have to say, that's not the worst beetle that you could be buried with. I swear to God, if you're about to do what I think you you're know about who, to do. You, you know what it was? Ringo Who's Starr is the worst beetle you could have been How dare you? <laughs> Ringo Starr. Ring, how we're, dare you diss Ringo like that? We're stuck in here for a million years together, Ringo Tip. <laughs> you want to write a song about an octopus? Why do I feel like this was probably an Animaniac sketch at some point? It, who knows? It might have been. Anyway. 3,000 years later, we're in 1926. And I didn't realize this movie took place in the 20s. It does. Surprise. An American (laughs) named Rick O'Connell shows up, and he pretty much does what all white American men do when they end up in Africa. He fucks shit up. You got artifacts? I'm taking those. Got ancient remains? I'm going to desecrate that shit. Exposition? You don't need it. You just have to trust that he's a badass. And that's exactly what Evelyn the studious librarian and her brother, the, the useless asshole <laughs> do. And so this trio makes a buddy named Gad Hassan at a Cairo prison. And they set off on this magical journey to rediscover Hamanoptera. And they're looking for some books and shit. It really doesn't sound very exciting when you boil it down like that, but it is long story short. They end up reawakening Imhotep. And he goes full Voldemort on everybody's ass. He's like, he starts out all weak and shitty. And then he just starts like kind of building his body back up. And his whole thing is that he wants to stick it in Aksu Naman one last time. And so he rains hellfire down on everybody, quite literally. Plagues, sandstorms, locusts, all kinds of spooky shit. But at the end of the day, Rick and Evelyn have just the right combination of brains and bronze to knock that motherfucker out and send him packing. <laughs> until the sequel anyway that was perfect rundown like tarzan in our previous episode the mummy isn't a sequel to anything it's not a continuation but it has a shitload of other source material much like how tarzan had basically 25 books that preceded it and this time though the source material for the mummy doesn't start with a book ironically it starts with the real deal And this is kind of cool because we've never really had a thing where we've talked about history or anything like that. But um, I'm excited to dig into this. I've never really dug into any of the... uh, I just realized that uh, I've never dug into anything. It's an archaeological thing. Oh, God damn Um, it, Jerry. (laughs) That makes up for the pun I made earlier. The upsetty pun. I'm upsetty at this point (laughs) with you. So let's start pretty far back in history. 95 years ago, there was an Egyptologist named Howard Carter, and he and his team unearthed the world's most famous mummy. If you don't know anything about history, if you don't know anything about other than what you may remember from your, like, sixth grade field trip to a museum or whatever it is, you at least know the name King Tut or the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. And 
for those of you who don't remember the details, Tutankhamun was the last of his royal family to rule during the end of the 18th dynasty during the New Kingdom of Egyptian history. This is the era in which ancient Egypt really had achieved the peak of its power. It was the same period, uh, same time period during which uh, Nefertiti ruled. It was also uh, when the aliens first landed. That's, well... Well, it was okay. a little bit after that, I guess, because they helped build the pyramids. Anyway. Tutankhamun died in 1323 BC when he was only 18 years old. I actually remember that when they did, in the movie Night at the Museum, when King Tut is one of the characters resurrected... He's like a kid, and it was I think it was Rami Malek who played him, but I always thought that was like, I think because I obviously spaced out in school, I, and of course learn everything from film, uh, I was like, was King Tut really a kid when he died? And I remember looking it up and going, oh, that's interesting. I gotta tell you, if you learned history from Night at the Museum, <laughs> I knew there might be going. a few topics that we need to review together, but we can do that at another time. Well, of course. So, Teddy Roosevelt was... He looked exactly like Robin Williams, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, and he used to be a genie as well. What? Oh, my yeah. God. While there aren't any surviving records of what caused Tutankhamun's death, some believe he was murdered by a blow to the head. Most likely, his death was the result of several complications due to illness and deformation. So there's that's, a lot well, to... that, ha that happens when your mom is your aunt as well. You don't necessarily come out with the the plumbing working so well he had all kinds of shit going on he had like a fucked up foot and he had scoliosis and shit and he used to hobble around with a cane not to not that sounds like ableist i'm not trying to be ableist but like he was like you know he wasn't in great form yeah yeah um either way he was laid to rest in the valley of the kings which is across the nile from luxor in egypt the valley of the kings is where pharaohs had been buried from the 16th to the 11th centuries bc but most of the other tombs in the valley had already been plundered long before 1922. In fact, when Howard Carter and his team found Tutankhamun's tomb, it was the first to be found almost completely undisturbed. And, which is fascinating, that that was the one that didn't get touched. It is interesting. What else is interesting about this is that this whole expedition was essentially to search for wealth and treasure and all that kind of fun shit right of course yeah. but the guy funding the mission was already rich so it's like hey man why um it was this guy george herbert who is also known as the fifth earl of carner carnervon carnervon did he have an, a monocle i assume that he did if you have earl in your name <laughs> i just assume that you look like a human mr peanut that's i, I was a human Mr. Peanut or the Monopoly Man? <laughs> well, the Monopoly Man really is a human Mr. Peanut. That's but anyway, okay, we're, we're digressing. Um, he owned racehorses. He was known as a reckless driver of early automobiles. He drove real quick, uh, as quick as you could in an early automobile. Um, and of course, he was an amateur Egyptologist, because it seems like most people with money back in the 20s were interested in just discovering shit in Egypt. So, he funds this expedition and they go to Egypt, and when they enter the burial chambers of Tutankhamun, they find his mummy and more than 5,000 different artifacts, including wow. a bunch of religious objects, a bunch of paintings on the walls, inscriptions, tons of other shit that King Tut wanted to take into the afterlife. Because part of what happened with mummies is they thought you had to bury them with the shit they were going to need in the afterlife, right? So it's like, if I were to be mummified, it's like, I need my phone charger, I need my Tums, <laughs> 
You know, like just general <laughs> shit like that. If I could get like a couple of pint glasses and yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe a joint, that'd be great. So yeah. the mummies would get buried with all that shit. So they find basically his his death go bag with him in there, um, and this discovery sparks a media frenzy around the world, but in particular in the United States. Um, and all these people in the U.S., as they do when they discover something new and cultural, uh, they become fascinated with it and try to make it their own. And so a cultural phenomenon known as Egyptomania swept the nation. Trip to the tomb of King Tut. Giza, Egypt, 1922. U.S. sailors on shore leave past the silent sphinx and pyramids on camel caravan to the recently discovered tomb of Tutankhamun. Here lies the pharaoh of another age. Here are first Americans to see the tomb of the boy ruler, guarded by young descendants of his ancient people. Howard Carter, Wright, discovered the treasure-laden tomb by unearthing these steps, found the remains and fabulous riches of young King Tutankhamun, pharaoh of Egypt, 40 centuries ago. fed everything from fashion to architecture. And in particular, Egyptomania fueled the development of the Art Deco style of architecture, which might be familiar to you, especially if you're a fan of old movies, because throughout the U.S. in the 1920s, a lot of movie theaters were adorned with all these really extravagant Egyptian decor that mimicked the opulence of these ancient pharaohs, right? Now, if you want to see something like that, you have to go to your local Fry's Electronics. But back in the day... They were all over the place. So the influence of Egyptomania extended beyond the movie houses um, and into the movies themselves eventually, starting with Universal Studios' 1932 film, The Mummy, which Brendan Fraser's version of The Mummy is technically a reboot of. Death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. The movies themselves, though, and it's important to note this, didn't just focus on the all the glitz and the glamour of ancient ancient Egypt, uh, kind of like how kind of like how earlier you said there, it fed everything from fashion to architecture. How it was kind of this, it was looking at this like happier side of things, and they were using it really as a way of style. The movies themselves capitalized on the darker side of Egyptomania, which was the actual curse of Tutankhamun. And so, yeah, (laughs) so Tutankhamun's curse goes by many names, including King Tut's curse, the curse of the pharaohs, or just the very generic and probably the one we've heard the most, the mummy's curse. Boring. Um, There's there's probably some, I think there's some Goosebumps episode from years ago or book that had that. 
But as Egyptomania swept the nation following Howard Carter's discovery, so too did the stories of a deadly curse that affected anyone who dared to break into a pharaoh's tomb. And the first to go was Lord Carnav Carnarvon. See, neither of us could say his fucking yeah, name. Yeah, neither of us can say it. Lord C. We'll call him Lord C. Lord C. So, Lord C the guy who financed the original expedition died suddenly from an infected mosquito bite in Cairo shortly after the expedition had ended. Around the same time that he died, all of the lights in the city went out at the exact same time. It's, it's very spooky. Um, yeah, that sounds bad. So shortly after Lord C's untimely passing, it, he died at around age 56. Popular magazines like the Times in London and the New York World magazine spread novelist Marie Corelli's hunch that the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. And this that sounds spread, so badass, dude. Yeah. Likewise, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle told the American media ancient priests could have created an evil elemental to protect Tutankhamun's tombs. <laughs> dude, that's my favorite one. Because yeah. he's he's a fiction author, and he goes, well, could be ancient priests who made an evil elemental. I don't know. And people were like, fuck, that's probably what it is. The thing is, so these assertions were made famous by figures of the time, and it spread quickly, giving credibility to this curse story. And what's crazy is you'd think that there's maybe a little bit more of a filter on the media, with the exception of Fox News. But there's a little more that is not spreading necessarily conspiracy theories, and pe but people would kind of look at stuff and go, okay, well, wow, that's interesting, but there's no way that that could be true. So the story was soon backed up by, like, five more deaths. Dude, it's pretty wild. So in 1923, this guy named Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey, I hope I said that right, of Egypt, was shot dead by his wife. In 1924, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, who supposedly X-rayed Tutankhamun's mummy, died a mysterious death. Hmm. Also in 1924, the governor general of Sudan, Sir Lee Stack, was assassinated in Cairo. Four years later, in 1928, another member of Carter's excavation team named Arthur Mace died of arsenic poisoning. And Carter's secretary, Richard Bethel, was found smothered in his bed in 1929. Oh, and if, like, if that wasn't enough, his father committed suicide in 1930. And all of these people had either served on Carter's team or had been to the excavation site. So if it was a coincidence, it was a very, very spooky one. It should be noted that most people who visited or worked in the tomb lived long and normal lives, but that didn't necessarily matter, probably because it was a lot more fun to believe in the curse that it was to write all of these mysterious deaths off as just coincidences. Because, I mean, there's still, you see people play into the idea of, is a curse real? Is this real? Is... Uh, it's almost like it's a little more fun to believe it in a weird kind of sadistic way. Yeah, um, it but, makes it more interesting. Yeah. When I say it's fun, it's fun for everybody except Carter and the seven people that I just mentioned that, or that Andrew <laughs> just mentioned that died. Um, at one point, Carter angrily dismissed the whole curse idea as, quote, Tommy Rot. It's Tommy Rot, <laughs> goddammit. That's what it is. However, Carter's own death only added fuel to the fire. He died alone and, quote, miserably unhappy of Hodgkin's disease in 1939 at the age of 64, and several of his obituaries referenced the curse as a potential cause for death. I think it's weird that even if the curse is, is not real and this and that, and he died of a disease that had nothing to do with this, 
the curse still followed him because people reported that that was one of the reasonings behind how he died. But dude, no so, matter how he died, they would have figured out a way to connect it back to the curse. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That will follow. That has followed him forever, and it always will. So which came first, the chicken or the curse? Exactly. As we had mentioned earlier, the rise of Egyptomania and the fascination with Tutankhamun's curse inspired Hollywood's first iteration of The Mummy in 1932. It's the classically mentioned Boris Karloff film. Here's the first part of the plot description from The Mummy in 1932, according to Wikipedia. In 1921, an archaeological expedition led by Sir Joseph Wemple, Arthur Byron, finds the mummy of an ancient Egyptian high priest named Imhotep, played by Boris Karloff. An inspection of the mummy by Wemple's friend, Dr. Muller, Edward Van Sloan, reveals that the viscera were not removed, and from the signs of struggling, Muller deduces that although Imhotep has been wrapped like a traditional mummy, he had been buried alive. Also buried with Imhotep is a casket with a curse on it. Despite Muller's warnings, Sir Joseph's assistant, Ralph Norton, Bramwell Fletcher, opens it. He reads aloud an ancient life-giving scroll, as you're wont to do when yeah, you're told you, you probably shouldn't read this, but he reads aloud an ancient life-giving scroll, the scroll of Toth. Imhotep rises, the sight of which snaps Norton's mind and causes him to laugh hysterically as the mummy shuffles off with the scroll. If that sounds a little bit familiar to you, it probably should, because a lot of those things that you just read about and those names are in the 1999 version of The Mummy. That's what I meant when I said it was technically a reboot, right? Um, but this first iteration of The Mummy does two major things. The first is that it creates the classic trope of the evil reanimated mummy, which was directly inspired by the supposed curse that befell Carter and his team. The second thing that it does is it places the mummy into the same classic horror category as other famous movie monsters like Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. So with that in mind, the fascination with the mummy actually goes a little bit deeper than Dracula or Frankenstein because unlike those two characters, the mummy and even the curse that created it were based on real life things and not some work of literary fiction. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that because... When you look at all of the universal monsters, like the ones I can name off my head, uh, off the top of my head, the Invisible Man, uh, the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, they're all based off of fictional characters. The Mummy is the only one that is inspired by something that is that came somewhat from real life. Obviously, there was a legend of a curse attached to it. But people thought the curse was real, too. Yeah. So it, it even that, even though that's not real, if people think it's real. Yeah, it adds like, to it a little bit more. Where's that line between what you think is real and what is actually real? Exactly. It's fascinating. This whole cultural fascination and the fact that it was based in something real and that people were really connecting with it on a deep level might be why that original mummy flick from 1932 spawned six other mummy-related movies in the 40s and 50s, all produced by Universal Studios. We had The Mummy's Hand in 1940. We had The Mummy's Tomb in 1942. We had The Mummy's Ghost in 1944. And you might be getting used to this uh, possessive apostrophe style of name in these movies. We had The Mummy's Curse, which also came out in 1944. So the ghost wasn't enough 
1944. We needed <laughs> the curse too. And there are a few reasons why people might have like wanted to be distracted from shit in 1944. So you can put two and two together yeah. on that one. <laughs> and then the last one we got was in 1955. And this one's a curveball. Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. Where will we find the mummy? Don't worry, the mummy will find you. You'll howl as you follow Bud and Lou in a strange land where exotic dancers perform ancient rituals. You'll scream at this mystic world of mad magic and uproarious adventure. Does this mean anything to you? It means death to whoever holds it. That's awesome. Which I have not seen, <laughs> but I fucking need to because yeah, it sounds I need to amazing. As well. It's, Doesn't I that mean, sound fantastic? It does. That's like if they made Jay and Silent Bob meet the Babadook. I swear to God, tag Kevin Smith in this. Because here's the thing, he'll fucking make it. <laughs> We're going to get another tusk, which I'm not <laughs> complaining about. Hashtag, uh, hashtag Jay and Silent Babadook. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm trying to think, like, what else he could... Like, are there other creature movies that they could have done? Okay, we're coming back to this later, because I have so many ideas now. Holy shit. Um, okay. There's potential with this idea. There's big potential. Right, Trademark Walrus Yes or Walrus podcast. No in response to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but there's something cool about these early movies, right? So, jokes aside, um, brilliant million-dollar ideas aside... As you were talking about earlier, there's a ton of universal movie monsters, right? And you listed them all earlier, so I'm not going to go into the whole list. But those monsters were really the first shared cinematic universe in pop culture. Yep. And all those characters like popped up in each other's movies, and they had interconnected storylines and all that cool shit. And that was like the predecessor to doing that. So we see that a lot nowadays, obviously, with superhero movies and all that kind of thing. Um, which in a way kind of replaced these like monster movies and action movies, even like the mummy later on, but that's another tangent. But um, so, so it was kind of cool. And Steven Summers agreed. He saw the original mummy movie on TV when he was eight years old. And ever since that day, he was interested in the idea of recreating that movie on a bigger scale. Um, and so he took that inspiration along with a bunch of the other movies he liked as a kid, like, um, Michael Curtis movies, Casablanca, um, and action adventure movies like Indiana Jones. And he took all that stuff and kind of melded it together. And that's how he made his mummy idea. But it's important to understand the Steven Summers version of the mummy that we see today is not the movie that Universal Studios intended to make when they first decided that they were going to reboot this property in 1992. Yeah. So the story of this specific mummy movie begins all the way back in 1992. Um, in that year, a couple of producers at Universal Studios named James Jacks and Sean Daniel figured it would be a great time to dig up the original 1932 mummy concept and modernize it for the 1990s. You see what I did there? You, you made a pun and you didn't even know it because I wrote was, it in the outline. To what dig up it? the mummy. Oh, you piece of shit. <laughs> ha, I tricked you into doing <laughs> yeah. a pun. Yes. Damn it. All right. So since it had been about 37 years since their last shot at a mummy picture, if that was about 1950, 1955, 
Universal was pretty quick to give Jackson Daniel the go-ahead. It's already property they own. They don't have to do a lot of research other than what they already have on hand. It's pretty good. But there was one catch, and that was that the studio wanted them to make a low-budget horror franchise, and they could only make the movie if they kept the budget around $10 million. Now, Jason Blum has not won't come into the picture for another, like, 20 years. So the days of making a horror movie on that kind of a scale for that low are not here yet. And with that in mind, with the idea that they can do this picture but they have to keep it around 10 million bucks, begins this revolving door of writers and directors. And this outline is crazy because of all of the people that we could have gotten this movie from. I'm very happy with Steven Summers. Like I said, I love this movie, but it's so crazy to think about some of these other people if they got it. There's a lot of like butterfly effect, sort of this could have happened, this could have happened going on with this movie. So yeah, so the first director slash writer that Jackson Daniel, and I can't say their names without thinking about Jack Daniels. Me neither. Uh, the first writer-director they brought on board was Clive Barker. And at this point in his screenwriting career, Clive Barker was best known for the Hellraiser franchise, which had already had three movies, a video game, and a Motorhead music video at this point. Uh, so there was, he was well-known for his spooky films. Yes. And uh, he immediately came on board and got to work on his idea for the story, which was a very violent tale about a cultist who runs a contemporary art museum and tries to reanimate mummies. Sounds and like a Clive Barker story. <laughs> it really does. And it's kind of like incongruent because like, why does an art museum have mummies? Because isn't that like a history kind of thing? But anyway, unless it was the mummy of like Vincent Van Gogh, which that's a different movie, I think. He um, was making the prequel to Night at the Museum. So, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so, anyway, according to Jax, uh, Barker's idea for the movie was, quote, dark, sexual, and filled with mysticism, just like Jared. He went on to say it would have been a great <laughs> low-budget movie. So, this was written with the idea of this $10 million low-ball budget in mind. In Barker's own words, his script was, quote, precisely what the powers that were at Universal did not want. So he wrote something that he knew they were not going to like. And they were going to give him an opportunity to sort of work on it and rewrite it and go in their direction. But before any of that could get off the ground, uh, they both just decided they didn't give a fuck. So Barker and Universal both just lost interest in each other and parted ways, which happens from time to time. So up next we had... Joe Dante. So you may recognize Joe Dante... Uh, as the director of some pretty iconic movies from the 80s and the early 90s. So some of these include Gremlins, which I think is probably the most iconic out of these. Uh, but Inner Space, The Burbs, and Small Soldiers, which is... <laughs> the Gorgonites. <laughs> which I think is actually... It's been a few years, but if I watched it again, I would be interested to think if it's an underrated movie. That movie holds up, dude. I watched it recently. And it, it, it holds up. It's pretty good. So Dante's idea for the movie went in a much different direction than Barker had had. And instead of a violent, scary mummy, Dante wanted a more melancholy, brooding kind of mummy. And he wanted him to be portrayed by none other than Daniel Day-Lewis. So <laughs> I guess it was 1999. I'm thinking of like Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, we hadn't gotten that yet. We'd gotten, I think, <laughs> did we get my left foot by that point? 
We did. My left foot had been out for 10 years at that point. Yeah, so we'd already seen what he could do, but screenwriter Alan Ormsby penned an initial draft reflecting Dante's ideas, but the script was eventually rewritten by John Sayles. In Sayles' rewrite, he chose to set the story in contemporary times and focus on reincarnation. He even dropped in a few common love story elements. Because that's what you want from a low-budget horror movie. Exactly. Is love. So while this version of the movie actually came very close to being made, the studio ultimately decided to go against Dante's vision. And there were a couple of reasons for this. So for starters, Universal had already bumped the budget up from their very lowball number of $10 million to uh, not much more, but $15 million. A whole uh, the, $5 million more? Yes. Gee <laughs> but golly. They, <laughs> but they still didn't think that Dante's movie could be made for that price. At the same time, they also had trouble getting a buy-in from the bigwigs. Um, namely, Steven Spielberg read and loved sales scripts so much that he personally took Dante to visit Sid Sheinberg, the head of Universal at the time, on the set of Casper, who was the friendly ghost. Um, even with the buy-in from Golden Boy Spielberg, Sheinberg just couldn't be sold on Dante's script. He was really adamant that The Mummy should be a period film like the first one. And as Dante has pointed out in every single interview on the subject since, he said, quote, the first one was not a period picture. It looks like a period picture now because it's made in 1933. And he obviously thought our picture should take place in 1933. And it didn't. And ultimately, that's the reason it didn't get made. In reality, the one that we got does take place in the 20s. Yes. And it kind of is a period piece. Like, not in a very obvious way, but... I would absolutely call this movie a period piece, it, it's 100%. Still, it's still kind of a period piece. So, anyway, Dante's done. He's out the door. Jackson Daniel turn to their third option now, Night of the Living Dead director George A. Romero. And this would have been so epic. <laughs> Dude, we got to pause on that for just a moment to think about the magnitude of a George Romero mummy. It would have been very different. Um, and that's not really very surprising. Romero initially conceptualized The Mummy as a zombie-style horror movie, no surprise, in the same vein as his other popular films like Dawn of the Dead. Oh, it would have been so cool. Think about that shit for just a minute. <laughs> and then, you know what, too? They had an opportunity to fucking do it this way when they rebooted it again with Tom Cruise, and they said, no, we're going to make it worse. We're going to make it like, what if The Mummy was was dug up in a hot topic at an abandoned mall we'll get into that all later because we are talking about that later but yes i understand your frustration because i have the same frustration i know I, i'm i'm upset but i just anyway. the, the one image i keep thinking of when i'm thinking of a george a romero thing is a scene where like imhotep is standing over the desert and says in ancient egyptian rise and then just Thousands of undead mummies just rise right? from the sand. and rise. All, Yeah. Like, like, like some Palpatine. Exactly. Yes. So, it's like, it's a cool thought. You know what? I think they got like, there's a scene in the movie where Imhotep's hand comes shooting up out of the sand. Yeah. And I think that's their little nod to like, hey, George, we remember that you kind of helped a little bit. But anyway, so he wanted this zombie style horror movie. Um, which makes sense, because a mummy is technically an undead thing. Um, and like Dante's script, Romero's version of the film relied a little bit on this idea of a romance story. Um, as well as the titular mummy, 
coming to terms with his own identity. And aren't you proud? I said titular without laughing. <laughs> Romero finished his first draft of the script in October of 1994, along with some co-writing help from our old friends, Alan Ormsby and John Sayles. So those two stuck around even after Dante left the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few plot descriptions floating around for what this version of the movie would have been like. And I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but here are a few of the highlights of what the George Romero mummy would have been. Okay. Female archaeologist Helen Grover, Helen, Evelyn, kind of close, discovers the tomb of Imhotep, an Egyptian general from the Ramses II era. The bulk of the movie takes place in modern America, where Imhotep's preserved body is inadvertently awakened by MRI rays, because that makes a fuckload of sense. Imhotep, looking young again, goes out on the town and tries to adapt to modern society. So it's kind of like this weird fish-out-of-water story where he's like, Tarzan hey, what? Takes Manhattan. Whoa, look at that. That's a, what's a VHS tape. I don't understand. Because it was 1999. He wouldn't have like seen a cell phone and shit, but he would have been very perplexed. Oh, what the fuck is a car? Those, those carriages are very quick, and I don't see any horses. That kind of shit. Didn't Disney Channel kind of do this with under wraps? They kind of did, and I, I don't... Hmm. Was that 1999? That might have been 1999. We might was, get to talk was, about it that. It was 98. I looked God it up. damn it. Yeah. Anyway, this young, suave version of Emotep goes out on the town, tries to adapt, um, and he even gets a little bit of a love story with Helen, who is revealed to have been a priestess of Isis in her past life, and not scary Isis. Uh, when Emotep gets tired of trying to dick Helen, he ends up resurrecting his former slave, Karis, who is actually the one who goes on a murderous rampage of revenge. Um, at the end of the day, Jax and the suits up at Universal thought Romero's script was way too dark for what they were trying to do. They thought it was too violent, and they thought that it would be very inaccessible for audiences. Um, they had not predicted the Twilight years, and I mean that in terms of Twilight, when a person falls in love with an actual vampire. Uh, they thought that that was inaccessible back in the day. So... Um, they decided that this wasn't going to work out too well. And in addition to that, George Romero was in the middle of a sticky contract negotiation for a movie called Before I Wake that he was making over at MGM. Um, So rather than giving him a chance to rework his script, they basically just said, you're out. And a handful of other writers and directors, including Mick Garris, who did Hocus Pocus, and Wes Craven, who obviously, which also would have been amazing. Wes Craven was known for Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Swamp Thing. All of these directors were and writers were briefly attached to the film, but they were either removed or they were turned down from the project. Um, I'd imagine that after like five years of trying to make this movie, Jax and Daniel had probably consumed a significant amount of Jack Daniels dealing with all of this stress. God. I see what you did there. <laughs> Um, but their troubles are about to be over. Enter Stephen Summers. In 1997, Jackson Daniel got a call from a writer-director named Stephen Summers, who had been interested in making a mummy movie since 1993, just a year after Jackson and Daniel got the green light from Universal. Given Summers' long-term interest in the studio's ongoing trouble finding a script and director, you might be wondering why they never synced up earlier. I was wondering why they never synced <laughs> up earlier. So there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that Clive Barker, George Romero, Joe Dante, Wes Craven, and to a lesser extent Mick Garris were all top-tier talent at the time, particularly for horror. 
And if you all remember, they wanted to make this a horror film. Summers, on the other hand, only had one writer-director credit leading up to 1992, and that was for a film called Catch Me If You Can. Not um, the Leonardo DiCaprio one. Not the Leo way. and Tom Hanks one. That but, came later. <laughs> uh, it makes sense he wouldn't have been their first, second, or even their third choice. The other is that Summers was already busy working on a number of movies like The Adventures of Huck Finn, a live-action Jungle Book film for Disney, and Deep Rising whenever The Mummy found itself searching for a new director. So the timing just never worked out. But just like when you and your crush are finally single at the same time, 1997 was the magic moment. So Summers comes on board, and he didn't just get the job because he was available. It wasn't like, yeah, I guess you'll do. Like He got it because he actually had a really interesting and marketable take on The Mummy story. A lot more marketable than, like, the spooky undead zombie thing, which nowadays is incredibly marketable. But anyway, yeah. um, Summers saw the movie as a kind of, like, Indiana Jones or Jason and the Argonauts sort of adventure, with the mummy as the creature giving the hero a hard time. So the mummy, in his vision, is not the main character of the movie. It's this other person who's battling the mummy, and that's a different dynamic. Um he put together an 18-page treatment, which, if you're familiar with screenwriting, 18 pages is about the first act of the movie, really. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get into too much detail. Um, and Universal loved the idea that he put together. Why did they like it? Because the low-budget horror movie that they were thinking about in the beginning was now shaping up to be this huge studio blockbuster film. And what happens with blockbusters and studio executives? Dollar signs floating around their heads. Right, so... But as the Roman playwright Titus Machius Plautus famously said, you got to spend money to make money. And so, as we know, the studio had already bumped their initial budget up from 10 to 15 million. But that 15 million was about to make a much bigger jump, now we're talking, to 80 million dollars. Holy shit. Yeah, so the studio is starting to get a lot more faith in this idea, getting ready to really do it, but... There was one surprising factor that made it possible for the studio to increase their budget, and I didn't know this until we started this outline. But the reason their budget was able to be increased was because of a movie called Babe Pig in the City. And this, this, this is the second time we've mentioned Babe Pig in the City on this podcast. Yes, I'll have it is. I, lo- I love Babe, though. I like that. Two times too many. Yeah. The Babe sequel was a massive flop at the box office, making just $8.5 million when it opened on Thanksgiving weekend, and totaling around $69.1 million. That's not good considering that they spent $80 million on the movie and another $20 million on mar- on, or so on marketing. That's the, thing that I think, oh, that's the thing I think a lot of people forget as well when p- they look at statistics for something and they say, oh, well, the movie was $600 and it made, or $600 million and it made... 600 or 610 million it's like yeah but how much did they put into marketing right because that still accounts for that you can think about it almost like like if you're not a movie person it's like sales tax right you look at something and you go this thing is a thousand dollars and then you walk out the door and you're like wait a second why is it thirteen hundred dollars yeah because that's all the other stuff that you get to add on it's 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 doordash it's the fees and shit that you don't expect that's and then suddenly your movie is incredibly expensive that's a great analogy and you Um, still are just getting a big mac delivered to your apartment at 10 o'clock at night 
Exactly. That's, I'm not speaking from personal experience <laughs> at all. Um, in fact, the, the movie was considered, and I didn't even think it was considered this bad of a failure, but apparently the movie was considered such a universal failure, pun intended, that Seagram Co., Universal's parent company, made the decision to shake up their management group by ousting Universal Studios co-chairman Casey Silver. They say he resigned, but we know how that all goes. Yeah, so, if you if you resign after something really shitty happens, you didn't resign. So Silver's resignation came just two weeks after Frank Biondi, Universal Studios chairman and CEO, resigned under pressure from Seagram Co. So Universal Studios president and chief operating officer Ron Meyer assumed Silver's duties, and one of his first orders of businesses was to revisit the studio's successful franchises from the 1930s. And one of those franchises that was super successful was The Mummy. So Meyer and his team didn't hesitate to foot the bill for a more expensive take on the film. So after five long years, The Mummy was finally ready to be resurrected. Now, with that being said, we have our story, we have our director, but now we need our cast. So let's talk about the cast. Our first cast member is none other than the famous Brendan Fraser as Fuck Rick yes. O'Connell. Brendan Fraser, dude. And you know what? He did know what to do with that chopped salad and scrambled <laughs> eggs. He had his shit together. All right. So before The Mummy, I think it's fair to say that Brendan Fraser was mostly a comedic actor at this yeah. point in his career. Um, it kicked <laughs> off with Encino Man, which is not a serious drama film. Uh, and then he was in Airheads, which again, not serious. And George of the Jungle, which, honestly, George of the Jungle, Schindler's List, pretty similar levels of seriousness. Just gonna say. Uh, and then also, just before The Mummy, he was in a movie called Blast from the Past, which is also in 1999, which we That's will correct. end up covering at some point on this podcast. Um, after The Mummy, he was obviously in The Mummy Returns, um, but he was also in Dudley Do-Right, Monkey Bone, which is one of my favorite Brendan Fraser movies, uh, Crash, and Journey to the Center of the Earth, among a bunch of other shit. He was also in Looney Tunes Back in Action, uh, which was obviously not a super high-regarded film, but his character, he was playing himself, and it was very funny. He's an interesting guy because I've watched some interviews with him, and he takes himself like very seriously during interviews. But he's also a very silly guy in the movies. So it's kind of this weird yeah. dichotomy. But anyway, um, he, he was perfect for Rick O'Connell. Um, he's one of my favorite characters of all time. Interestingly, one of the reasons that he was cast in The Mummy was because George of the Jungle was so successful. <laughs> and Stephen Summers watched that movie. And after seeing it, he felt that Brendan Fraser fit this kind of like Errol Flynn swashbuckly character that he had envisioned. Um, and he understood that, like, Brendan wouldn't take the character of Rick too seriously. Because if you take him too seriously, the audience doesn't, like, identify with him as a person, right? So they felt like Brendan Fraser was perfect for the role. Uh, that being said, there were a couple of people who may have received this role who didn't. And I always like talking about this part because it's fascinating to imagine what these movies would be like with some of these alternate casting choices. Yeah. So here's a little bit of a rundown of who almost played Rick. Mm -hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> is kind of the top runner. And he was not like the Leo we know today back in 1999. You know what I mean? Like he was getting there, 
but he was still a very young guy. Yeah, he had so just I think that would have been Titanic. an interesting role. Yeah, like he he wasn't. I don't see him as comparable to Brendan Fraser back in that day. But anyway, he liked the script. He wanted to be in the movie, but he had already agreed to be in this movie called The Beach that came out in two thousand. I remember and the he, beach. <laughs> I did not see the beach, but DiCaprio asked if the beach could be delayed so that he could do the mummy. And then the producers of the beach said, no, fuck that shit. And then it got delayed anyway. So he just got totally boned out of being in the mummy. But I think that's okay. Um, Other people who could have gotten this role, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Chris O'Donnell, Matthew McConaughey, and Tom Cruise, who, as we all know, ended up starring as the lead in the reboot of The Mummy in 2017. And uh, I'm glad that they didn't cast him in 1999. Yeah. Because we just ended up waiting 18 years for a bad movie instead of getting a bad movie to begin with. Um, Before Brendan Fraser, the role was offered to Sylvester Stallone. So imagine that. (laughs) There's a mummy over there. We gotta get that guy. Right? Uh, Bruce Campbell and Kurt Russell were also considered. (laughs) Adrian. Yo, Emotep. <laughs> think, think about that shit for a moment. You, you picked a bad time to take a sip of your water bottle, Jared. Um, but yeah, so there were a lot of people considered for this role. They ultimately ended up going with Brendan Fraser. And I think one of the reasons for that is something that Summers himself said, which is, quote, I hate boring macho action heroes. But Brendan is not that at all. He's a lot of fun and can be really charming and lovable. A guy that women like, but men like too. And the last part of the comment is a little weird, but I, I know what he's that's saying. That's fine. I know what he's saying too, but like, you don't, you know, you don't really like make that observation in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> in 2019, you're like, yeah, that, you know, the, the dames and the guys really like him. <laughs> and now you're just like, yeah, he's, he's a guy. He's in the movie. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, what's interesting though, is Hollywood was not as convinced as Steven Summers that Brendan Fraser was the right choice for the movie. Um, and this is from an Entertainment Weekly article that came out about maybe a week or two before The Mummy was released in 1999. And Entertainment Weekly said, Hollywood will be keeping its eye on the film's 30-year-old star as well, waiting to see whether the likable doofus who swung around the screen in a loincloth in George of the Jungle can fill as many seats as a fully-dressed action hero. Interesting. He was perfect for this role. I think there were two other names, though, that are on this list that I think that you had passed over for people that were considered for the role of Rick O'Connell. And one of the names in particular really sticks out to me. Kurt Russell and Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell would have been fucking awesome in this. If you've seen Ash versus the Evil Dead, if you've seen... Obviously, the Evil Dead movies are great, but Ash versus the Evil Dead is basically like... Those movies, but with more of a budget and getting to see much more of him as, like, the badass, like, I'll take it from here. I know how to kill these bastards and goes in and just, like, like that kind of attitude, I would be amazing. It would have well, been super cool. We'll get into that a little bit more later, but Evil Dead was actually kind of an inspiration for some of the scenes in this movie. So I can see why you would put that together. Um, the next person we've got is... Rachel Weiss, Evelyn 
Carnah- um, who plays Evelyn Carnahan in the movie. This is actually the movie that I think really made her a star because of this. This was really her big break. And so she was about six in 16 movies and shows before The Mummy. None of them were super high profile, nothing crazy. She was just kind of getting started. But after this movie... We're actually going to be talking more about Rachel in the future because she was in three other movies in 1999. Like Brendan Fraser, this was a great year for her. Um, she was in Sunshine, Tube Tales, and This Is Not an Exit, the fictional world of Brett Easton Ellis. I have never heard of any of these, but I'm excited to catch her because I think she is a wonderful actress. Well, that's the beauty of this podcast, Jerry. Exactly. We're going to watch a lot of shit we've never heard of. Exactly. And some um, of it's going to suck. <laughs> thankfully <laughs> thankfully we haven't gotten there yet but i know it's i know it's coming but after this movie she was obviously in the mummy returns uh constantine the lovely bones the born legacy the lobster oz the great and powerful and in the upcoming black widow movie that should have fucking been released already God but damn it, it wasn't COVID. so i'm yeah whenever that comes up i'm excited to see her in it originally there were of course other people that were considered to be in this role. Um, an actress named Anna Friel was considered for the role of Evelyn, but Rachel Weiss was the only actress that was actually offered the part. And it's kind of rare, actually. Yeah, that is super rare. Like, they had to have absolutely seen something in her performance, and, I mean, you watch the movie, you see it on screen. She's absolutely perfect for this role. Um, she even says in an interview... Quote, Evelyn is very intellectual and has always dreamt of going on an archaeological dig, but I think she suffers because she's a woman. There were some female archaeologists in the 20s, but it was difficult for them to have lives outside of the museum. So when the opportunity arises for her to cut it loose becomes a very exciting adventure for her, even though she is a sort of wide-eyed innocent with no experience in life. And that quote, like, perfectly sums up the way that she plays the character. Yeah. It's and, great. Yeah, and she's like easily one of the best parts of the movie because her character is her character isn't the damsel in distress. Her character can like kick into action pretty fucking quickly if the if the moment calls for it. Obviously, when she's like confronted by Emotep in the chamber, she's scared. But then it's not like a I need someone to come and save me. It's like she'll fight back if she fucking needs to. No, she's like she's like I'm scared, but I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, you and know I what think I mean? that's and awesome, and that it's a... I give credit to the writer for actually writing a female character in an action movie with dimension and not in the stereotypical way we see a lot of action characters. Yeah, I mean, there are some reviews of this movie that actually talk about how it's... They they put it with, like, a question mark. They say, like, it's it's kind of feminist? Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, it, it's, it's really not, like... Her her whole thing is like I mean, she basically at the beginning of the movie gets sexually assaulted by the main character and then decides yeah. that she's in love with him. So that's not very feminist at all. But at the same time, she's also got like a lot of agency and she's kind of like the driving force for the movie. She's like she is the one who understands all of the history. She's the one who understands what they need to do to solve the problem. She has a lot of agency in the movie. And so there's there's some accounts that are like, you know, it's like this was a good try. Like I, I guess that's how I would sum it up. Like yeah. it was a for 1999 especially it was a good try. Yeah, they and didn't think, quite get there, but they started. Yeah, and I I appreciate that. So moving on, our next actor is Arnold Vosloo, who plays Imhotep. 
and this guy is a badass. Yeah. He's a bad <laughs> yes. motherfucker. Um, before The Mummy, he was in a couple of things that are familiar, many things that are not. The most familiar of those things being Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, after he was in The Mummy Returns, he also appeared in uh, Agent Cody Banks, which some of you might like. I've never seen it. I don't uh, it was, remember him in Agent Cody Banks. I saw that movie when I was a kid. Yeah, I I, I did not. Uh, he was also in Blood Diamond. Um, he was in a few episodes of the show Chuck, which is a hugely just criminally underrated show. And he was in G.I. Joe Retaliation. So James Jacks was actually already familiar with Arnold Vosloo before The Mummy because... He had also been a producer on Hard Target, which was directed by John Woo. And so Jax knew that Vosloo would be perfect for this part of Emotep. Um, and Vosloo was stoked about it. He loved the role. But from what I could find, there was only one thing about it that he didn't like. And that was that his body had to be completely hairless Jeez. in order to be Emotep. Oh, and the reason for that is that he spends most of the movie shirtless in a loincloth kind of like the hero of the last episode of this podcast <laughs> tarzan and so he had to be like tarzan hairless on his body and they couldn't even have like a single pube sticking out anywhere no chest hair no leg stubble nothing and so he was shaved down not once a week not once every other day not even once a day twice a a day during filming, they shaved his entire body to make sure that he looked smooth as silk. And they did try waxing once because they knew that that would be like a better solution. <laughs> and they, they tried it and he goes, nope. He did like the Stephen Carell in, in 40-year-old virgin reaction. He goes, nope. <laughs> Suck a motherfucker. You shit it I hate you so much. You. That one hurt. That one hurt just as much as the first one. Coming to the next character, we have John Hanna, who plays Jonathan Carnahan, who, to me, is one of the funniest characters in at least any of the movies from this year, and in any that I can think of, because, and I'll explain more, but of how ridiculous some of his moments are. So... Mostly, he was in TV movies and series in the late 80s and early 90s. But then he is in a movie, a great movie, called Four Weddings and a Funeral. And that starts to really launch his career and get him some attention. He comes on to The Mummy. After that, he obviously is in The Mummy Returns. Uh, he has a lot more TV series that he jumps into. Alias, Cold Blood, Damages, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and a few other studio films. I actually read something from an entertainment... I think it was from an Entertainment Weekly article. I can't remember which article it was, but there was a moment when they brought him on and they would ask him, and he'd have a script, but then they would say, like, okay, we want you in the scene. And then he'd go, okay, well, I don't really have any lines, like, when they're just, like, walking in the in the sand or something. Right. And then they would say to him, it's like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? Uh, just do what your character would do and just kind of stumble around and if it's funny, we'll shoot it. And he's like, 
why do you think I'm a comedy actor? (laughs) But it played very well. And it was funny. Like you just, it's like, like the drunken friend that you just bring along, but ends up not being super annoying, like has some genuinely funny moments. But he even says, I wasn't convinced at first that I was up to playing a role in a big budget Hollywood movie with such big effects. The work I'd been doing until that point was within an area I could directly relate to in a very real sense. I told Stephen that I might have difficulty playing scenes that involve a 3,000 year old dead guy coming down the stairs to kill me and suck my guts out. <laughs> Which is a funny thing to say because that doesn't happen in the movie. No, but I understand what he's I understand what he's going for. But I, I think that his his character kind of like how we talk about how Rachel Weiss's character is written in a way that is better than the the stereotype that's generally given to like you look at there's like the badass action hero who's the main character then you have the female who's usually always the damsel in distress doesn't really have a word in edgewise in this she's intelligent she can take control of situations she's an important part of the story and then usually you see there's like the sidekick character who doesn't really do anything he just kind of does whatever the the hero does and he's like whatever i'm with you i'm right there with you he'll he'll do whatever it is and it's kind of a throwaway character other than just him needing to be in the scene because he fits the description but he has all these moments that are hysterical because he's just kind of fucking around and doesn't necessarily like like he's just caught in the crossfire but kind of doesn't give a shit he's like was that a gun that just flew by? Shit. All right. I got to get down. I just, he kind of steals the scene a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's funny. So one thing I got to say about him that's, that's impressive to me is that he obviously has like a, a nice, normal, subtle British accent in yeah. this movie. He does not have that accent in real life. No. And I would have thought <laughs> he did. I would have bet money on the fact that that was his actual voice. Cause in interviews, he's like, I wasn't coming. So I was like, I was up to such playing a role in a big Hollywood budget movie. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? This guy's Scottish? No way. Yeah. So he, he did a killer job. Yeah. Next up on the docket is Kevin J. O'Connor as Benny Gabor, who is just just quite the asshole in this movie, honestly. <laughs> like, he's he's like the lovable asshole. He's, he's, like, he's like if Iago the parrot was a person. My favorite scene, I have a number of favorite scenes with him, but I have to say one because it's the one that I actually paused and rewound because I find it so fucking funny. It's when Brendan Fraser pins him against a wall and he goes, you came back from the desert with a new friend, didn't you, Benny? And he just goes, <laughs> I love it. Of course not. You're my only friend. <laughs> and he slams him back on the ground. <laughs> You came back from the desert with a new friend, didn't you, Benny? But, friend, you were my only friend. Dude, he's, he's so good. I couldn't figure out what the fuck he was doing, though. Like, part of me is like, this guy's playing some weird, like, caricature of this, like, racially ambiguous kind of character. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I couldn't figure out exactly who he was supposed to be. Like, I understood his character and his motivations. But I'm like, the whole time, I'm like, where did this guy come from? Who is this person? How did he get here? Why is he like this? And I didn't get those questions answered at all. And you know what? I'm okay with it. Because he was fun to watch. Um, before The Mummy... 
Kevin J. O'Connor was in Steel Magnolias, which you might recognize. That's a popular title. Um, and we're going to be talking about him again as well, because he was also busy in 1999. He was in Chill Factor and a movie called If Dog Rabbit, hmm. which is, in my opinion, not a great name, but I'm curious about it. Yeah. Um, after that, he was in Van Helsing in 2004, which was A, also directed by Steven Summers, and B, the second sort of character installment in the reboot of the original Universal Monster Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. So Van Helsing and, and The Mummy are technically, I believe, in the same universe. Uh, he was also in There Will Be Blood and another G.I. Joe movie, The Rise of Cobra. So apparently if you were in The Mummy, you were a prime candidate for G.I. Joe. <laughs> uh <laughs> Kevin J. O'Connor had previously worked with Steven Summers on the action-adventure movie Deep Rising, um, and he was thrilled to team up with Steven Summers again, um, but he was also drawn to this character of Benny, and this is how O'Connor himself describes Benny. So this is his attempt to answer my question of who the fuck is this guy and where the fuck did he come from? Quote, Benny is smarter than the Americans, but not as smart as he thinks he is. And he's from Budapest, but he's still going through puberty, which explains his unusual voice. So, so to me, that's that's Kevin O'Connor going. All right, I'm going to make up a backstory for this dude because I have no idea. And hey, you're being I mean, you're being paid to act. So makes sense if you want to make up a backstory and go with it. So I buy it. I'm good with that. There you go. Um, the next up act. Next up, we have um, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly. Omid Jalili. And he plays Warden God Hassan, who they uh, pick up from the prison and bring along on the journey. He's he's my favorite character in this fucking movie. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I love him. So before The Mummy, The Mummy was only his fifth screen acting role, and it, w and it was his first that wasn't a TV series. But he'd actually had some prior experience as a stand-up comedian, and he'd studied theater. So after The Mummy, again... Another person who's going to pop up in 99. All these people had very busy years. He pops up in a few more films throughout the year, including uh, coming up in a couple episodes of The World Is Not Enough, the 007 installment, um, Coming Soon, and Mad Crows, or sorry, and Mad Cows. He actually also has an uncredited role in our very next movie that we're going to be doing, Notting Hill. That's um, true. So I watched we'll, it last night. Yes. He's in it for about... Half a second. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about that one with you. It's very fun. He was in Spy Game, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, His Dark Materials on HBO, and the Netflix show The Letter for the King. Now, Andrew pointed out something to me, and we're going to do a side-by-side -side comparison of this, but... Yeah, I, te I texted Jared, and yeah, I said, you explain this. You have to understand. Omid Jalili sounds exactly, exactly like Charlie Day. Like, same fucking person. If my eyes are closed and all three of us are in a room together, I don't know who's talking. And I, I've specifically asked Jared to pull clips of the two of them and put it side by side so that you can hear what I'm talking about. Yeah, man. Of course we don't let him go. Yeah, yeah, but that... 500 pounds. Look up on the... <laughs> His neck did not break. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. 
Now we must watch him strangle to death. All right, so I start marching my way down to Carol and HR, and I knock on her door and I say, Carol, Carol, I gotta talk to you about Pepe. And when I open the door, what do I find? There's not a single goddamn desk in that office. There is no Carol in HR. Next up, we have Odin Fair as Ardith Bay, who is one of the coolest, most badass characters in all of cinema, in my opinion. This motherfucker shows up and he goes, I protect this place. You're not supposed to be here. Fuck you. And then they go, no, dude, like, we're cool. And he goes, all right. And he joins them. And it's like, he's the coolest member of the team. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's like, he's like this fucking sword wielding, like kind of like ancient seeming badass character at the beginning of the movie. He rides in on a horse and he's lobbing motherfuckers heads off and stuff like that. Right. And then at the end of the movie, he's got a fucking full auto machine gun and he's just <laughs> shooting mummies in the head. Yeah. And he, he has like this just amazing, like fucking Rambo character transformation. And he does it with I a totally straight face. And it's awesome. Dude, no, he's, he's so good. He is so fucking good. And I'm so happy that they cast him because at the time that this movie was made, he had only been in two other things before the mummy. He only had the, the mummy is his third credit on IMDb. And the only other things he was in were TV series called killer net and the knock. I've never heard of either of those things. So he goes from nothing to nowhere to biggest blockbuster of the year. Well, yeah. I guess not really financially, but anyway, um, we're going to talk about him again in this podcast because he also appears in a 1999 movie besides The Mummy. And that movie is one that I know from our very first episode that Jared is excited to talk shit. about. And that is Deuce Bigelow, <sighs> Male Gigolo. Yeah. Yep. So we're going to talk about him again. Um, he returns as Ardeth Bay in the sequel, The Mummy Returns. Um, and he is also known for his work in Resident Evil, Apocalypse, Retribution, and Extinction. So he, he plays a big role in the Resident Evil universe as well. Just to name off a couple people that were in uh, some of these movies. Uh, Jonathan Hyde, who is in Titanic and Jumanji. Eric Avari, who is in Stargate, Independence Day, Planet of the Apes. Um, a notable character is played by a man named Stephen Dunham, who was in Get Smart and Paranormal Activity 4. Stephen Dunham had actually auditioned for the role of Rick O'Connell. He was rejected, obviously, but Stephen Summers liked his acting so much that he made up the character of Mr. Henderson specifically for him. So that's pretty cool. We've also got Corey Johnson, Tuck Watkins, Aharane Pale, Bernard Fox, and then I want to note this one because I think this is cool. Patricia Velasquez, who was in The Curse of La Llorona. Her first credited role was in the video for the Red Hot Chili Pepper song Breaking the Girl. But a lot of fans will know her as... Marta on Arrested Development. The yeah, one we who, keep finding up reasons to bring up Arrested Development, even the, though it was not made in 1999. Yep. Uh, the one who is in a relationship with Hermano. Hermano. <laughs> I love that plot line for the show. I've um, made a huge mistake. So let's talk about filming. The Mummy was filmed, like many of the other movies that we've talked about already on this podcast, on location. However, it was not filmed in Egypt, which is what you might think. The crew couldn't shoot in Egypt because of unstable political conditions. And for a little bit of context, 
Here's some of the stuff that was going on in Egypt around the time that the movie was under production. Uh, between 1992 and 1997, there was basically an Egyptian Islamic group that committed a series of terrorist attacks on government and tourist targets. The biggest and most brutal of these attacks occurred on November 17th, 1997 in Luxor. And the attack known as the Luxor Massacre had... A, just a really devastating body count. 62 people were killed, and 58 of those people who were killed Jesus. were tourists. Man. Yeah. So, understandably, by the time The Mummy was ready to start filming, a couple of years after that, it wasn't exactly like a chill place to send a group of yeah. Americans and British people yeah. over to Egypt. So, because of all of that stuff going on, they decided that they were going to film elsewhere. And so they ended up filming in three primary locations. So the film was in three different locations. Principal photography began in Marrakesh, Morocco on May 4th, 1998, and it lasted 17 weeks. So from, from there, filming moved to the Sahara Desert just outside the small oasis town of Erfoud, which is also in Morocco. The Mummy was actually the second film to be filmed in Erfoud. The first was March or Die, which was a 1977 British war drama directed by Dick Richards and starring Gene Hackman, Terence Hill, Catherine, Deneu Catherine Deneuve, Max von Sydow, and Ian Holm. That's quite the cast. And also, Dick Richards is quite the name, because his name is Dick Dix, which is like the cute little mammal. The Dick Dick. Since 1999... And, and, and not like anything else. <laughs> Uh, how old are we? Uh, since 1999, Erfoud has been used as a shooting location for Prince of Persia in 2010 and Spectre, the 2015 James Bond film. So, while the production designer Alan Cameron was scouting locations um, around Erfoud, one of his primary goals was actually to find the hidden city of Hamanoptera. Not literally, of course. Yeah. <laughs> he was just looking for a place to make a set for Hamanoptera. He didn't think it was real. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not him. But anyway. Are we talking about the Hamanoptera? The, yeah, we're talking about the Hamanoptera. <laughs> Air quotes galore. Um, so this guy just wanders out into the desert, Alan Cameron. He goes, fuck it. I'm just going to walk around and see what I can find. And um, I don't know if he was literally walking, but he did come across a large geological formation known as Gara Medwar. When he saw that formation, he knew that he'd found Hamanoptera. Um, Gara Medwar is also known as Jabel Maduwar, um, which roughly translates to round mountain. So it's basically like this horseshoe-shaped formation, and you see it in the movie. Um, and it's often referred to as a crater or a volcano because in Spectre, it is a volcano, but it's not really a volcano. And it's not really a crater. It's just like a weird circular erosion pattern that happened to happen in the desert. And uh, many, many years ago, the Portuguese put up a bunch of mud walls near it to kind of fortify that shape. And so that's how we got our setting for Hamanoptera. And it's only 26 minutes away from Urfud. So it was the perfect setting for the city of the dead. Um, the mummy crew had to build like a concrete ramp that allowed the crews and equipment to get into the formation. Hmm. And once that ramp was built, it kind of like, it, it basically stayed there for the duration of the movie and afterwards. So 
they build this ramp and then they just start bringing in all the shit they need to build the fake city. And that takes about 16 weeks. Um, so they have all these fiberglass columns and they have all the special effects stuff that's rigged into those columns that are going to be used in the later scenes of the movie. And they get all that stuff set up and the team conducted a survey of the column statues and all the other set pieces so that they could actually rebuild a scale model of that set back at Shepperton Studios in England, which is where they are eventually going to go for the third leg of filming. So build the real set take all these pictures and measurements and all that kind of fancy shit to make the fake set. Uh, if Shepperton Studios sounds familiar to you, great. If it doesn't, you might recognize it by its other name, which is Pinewood Studios. Sound familiar? That's where they made Age of Ultron. That's where they made Doctor Strange. That's where they made Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a big-time studio. Oh, yeah, so remember I said that ramp stayed in place after the movie was done the the ramp is actually still there um and people use it now for other productions like specter use the same ramp that they built for the mummy um people are using this location for off-roading and tourist visits and all kinds of stuff all the time and it actually kind of ended up fucking up this landmark that which sucks. used to be this beautiful natural formation and now it's full of like old water bottles and fritos bags and shit so as as things happen that that's what happened there yeah, and so from Morocco, the cast and crew traveled to their final filming location, which was the United Kingdom. And one of the sets in the UK was the library, most of which was filmed in England's Mentmore Towers, which you might actually recognize as Wayne Manor from Batman Begins. Everybody's recycling everything and wor working right. together to make it look... It, it all works out. So You probably won't recognize it if you watch The Mummy, because I think they only used interior shots from Mentmore for the library and they use exterior shots of it for Wayne Manor. So it's, it is the same building. So another set was the replicated set of Hamanoptera in which all the scenes that take place in the underground passageways were shot. And the final UK set second in size only to Hamanoptera was built on the dockyard at Chatham in Kent. The dockyard at Chatham, Kent. So this was the set for the Giza port scene where the characters are seen before boarding on the riverboat on the Nile. And this is a cool connection back to Toy Story. Because you remember when they went to Giza port and they were lost and Sid got them from the claw machine? You piece of shit. <laughs> Andrew, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, so when Buzz and Woody were at Giza port, uh, they... You see how my mind works, Jared? Yes. It's like a laser. I like it. Just... it. I like it. So the massive set was 600 feet long, and it featured an, an, kind of a chop basket of things, as we've been talking about, at least in the way that this is described. This one set alone featured a steam train, an Ajax traction engine, whatever that is, three cranes, an open two-horse carriage, four horse-drawn carts, five dressing horses and grooms, nine-pack donkeys and mules, as well as market stalls, Arab-clad vendors, and room for 300 costumed extras. Mr. Summers, you have 60 minutes to make your scene, and go. Um, <laughs> principal photography wrapped for the film on August 29th, 1998. One of the most badass things about The Mummy is not the final product, but the fact that it's one of the more dangerous making of segments that we've had 
for any episode to date. It's probably, probably the most dangerous, to be honest with you, because there was a lot of shit going on in Morocco at the time. And we already gave you a little bit of the kind of political background of what was going on in North Africa. But there was a lot of other stuff going on. First of those things was the scorching heat of the Sahara Desert. As you may have heard, the desert is warm. And uh, the Sahara Desert averages between 100 and 104 degrees in the hottest months of the year. Yeah. Which just so happens to be when they were filming in the Sahara Desert. Of course. Desert. So that was very well planned. Probably because it was um, cheaper. <laughs> prob- you know what? It probably was. And they couldn't transport a bunch of air-conditioned trailers out there because it was all the way in Africa, in the middle of the desert, and that's not something that they have like readily available in our food. So... Everyone just kind of had to deal with being hot. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the biggest concern about being hot is dehydration, uh, heat stroke, all that kind of fun stuff that happens, right? The production's medical team goes, look, we can't keep you guys cool with air conditioning. So here's this special drink that we made up, and you got to drink it every two hours. Yeah. Or you'll... (laughs) basically get dehydrated and get sick yeah so i i looked i scoured the internet i couldn't figure out what the fuck was in this drink (laughs) but it was some weird combination of i'm sure electrolytes and vitamins and minerals and all kinds of shit and everybody had to drink it every two hours yeah and luckily as a result of that they were able to avoid most serious heat related injuries during production that was danger number one Danger number two, sandstorms. And I'm not talking about Darut. Yeah. <laughs> sandstorms were daily inconveniences. And even though they weren't necessarily as bad as the one created by Emotep with his <laughs> face in it and all that shit, they were dangerous nonetheless. We talked about that a little bit with uh, Star Wars Episode One, yeah. as well, the sandstorms. So that was danger number two. As if that wasn't enough for you, the crew was also constantly exposed to a wide array of native snakes, spiders, and scorpions. Jared, I'm going to put this into into just sheltered American white boy terms. I saw a spider the size of a quarter in my kitchen the other day, <laughs> and I had to kill it with a Swiffer because that was the only way for me to end its life without getting within six feet of it. And then... Even though it was dead, I vacuumed its corpse up off the wall because I didn't want to touch it with a tissue. So that's how I feel about these things. Meanwhile, in Morocco, the crew of the mummy is dealing with all kinds of creepy crawly shit, including desert horned vipers, saw scaled vipers, which I didn't know was a thing. And that sounds very scary. Yeah. And then finally, Nubian spitting cobras, which I heard are very fast. That scares the shit out of me. If they're anything like Nubian ships, you got to watch out for those (laughs) Nubian spitting cobras. In addition to that, there were more than 30 species of scorpions. Not one. 30. Not five. 30. Jesus. Was one one of them the rock? Yes. Yes, it was him. He was just crawling in the sand, waiting. Hey, guys, getting, getting ready for next year. We're going to do a sequel. Like, can, you, can you smell what I'm cooking down here, guys? Can, 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 can you smell it? Um, and then finally, uh, camel spiders. What is a which, camel spider? <laughs> a camel spider is a large humped spider. No, it's it's actually not. It's They have a bad reputation because in the animal world, they fuck shit up. I don't think they're that bad for humans, but like 
if you're like a mouse or some shit, you don't want to be around a camel spider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it'll fuck you up. So there was all kinds of stuff there. And over the course of the shoot, a bunch of crew members had to be airlifted via helicopter to the nearest hospital after being bitten by all this shit. And Brendan Fraser himself had a very close call with one of these snakes. And I have a direct quote from him. Yeah, this, this story is great. So he says, Brendan Fraser said, quote, They sent a memo out on the call sheet describing a type of snake that I think had yellow dots on it. They said, if you see this kind of snake, do not go near it. Walk or run away. Because, at best, if it bites you, maybe they'll amputate your limb. Anyway, there I was, pissing down a rock. (laughs) And I looked down, and there's a yellow dot snake. And I was like, fuck! I just ran for it. End quote. Yeah, it's about what I would do, too. That's why I don't pee in Florida. Because you never know. No, you never know. Even when you're in a bathroom, you never know. Yeah. Yeah, you never... It could be spiders, it could be a snake, it could be a Trump fan. You never know what could pop out of your (laughs) It just comes flying out of the (laughs) toilet. It's like, make America great again, and he bites your dick off. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. It's like Mitch McConnell. He's a snapping turtle. That makes perfect sense. It's all all connected, man. But anyway, so... We covered the sandstorms, we covered the snakes, we covered the heat. There's all kinds of nasty shit. And if none of that got you, you still had to worry about the most dangerous animal of them all. People. So apparently kidnapping is quite the the sport in Morocco. And we already mentioned that they chose to film in Morocco because it was safer than Egypt. But safer doesn't mean safe, right? So... The studio was so worried about the risk of a cast member being kidnapped and held for ransom. Jesus that they, Christ. A, yeah, right? Like, okay, come on, right? They <laughs> Like, if someone tells me, like, they might not have a bathroom there, I'm not going to go. And this is like, they might kidnap you and hold you for ransom, right? But you could so, be a Hollywood star. Well, Hollywood. that's true. <laughs> is it worth being kidnapped if I look like Brendan Fraser? Maybe. But exactly, anyway, yeah. so... So they had, it, it, the shit was so fucked up there that they had to get support from the Royal Moroccan Army to basically guard them while they were filming. So you would think that would be enough, but it wasn't. Because in addition to that, Stephen Summers in the studio took out kidnapping insurance on all of the Jesus cast Christ. members. Christ. Sounds, like yes, sounds like something out of the 1920s. <laughs> kidnapping insurance is a real thing. It's a, that I bet you the dad from Rush Hour wished he had. But kidnapping insurance is fucking real. Okay? And so, the craziest part of all of this, though, is remember what I said? Like, I wouldn't go if I knew this was the case? Yeah. The, the actors didn't know that this was the case. Oh they didn't tell any of the cast about this insurance policy until after filming was done. You may be wondering how it's even possible for Universal Studios to take insurance out on these big celebrities without having to tell them about it or get any kind of personal information from them. Right? Yeah. Like, a little bit strange. The reason being is that the money wouldn't go to the cast members or their families if something happened to them. The money would go to Universal Studios. (laughs) So they were basically insuring the actors as their property. And apparently this is a normal thing. Like this happens all the time because if you're a studio and you're investing in an actor, what do you do with your investment? You You protect it, protect it financially. That's first of all, 
I, I have weird feelings about that. <laughs> it's weird, right? Yeah. So you might get kidnapped. You might get your dick bitten off by a snake. You might get sand in your eyes. And you might die of heat stroke. But at least you get to be in the mummy. We've set the course for what the terrain of this film looked like. Kidnapping, uh, violent weather storms, uh, all of the local flora and fauna that make up these this area. But... The filming sounds more exciting than the movie itself. Yeah, almost. It's it's a little bit like it, it's almost like Apocalypse Now, Heart of Hearts of Darkness. Uh, how Apocalypse Now is exciting, but then there's the documentary that's like right. just holy shit about everything that happened. But Brendan Fraser was one of these people who really stuck his neck out for this. And when we say that he stuck his neck out, I mean. He literally almost died from a neck injury while filming one of the scenes of this movie, and it's really fucked up. So, I shouldn't be laughing because it is fucked yeah. up. But. So if you haven't seen the movie, then you, I mean, I don't know why you're listening to the podcast at this point because the point is to watch it beforehand. But if for some reason you haven't seen the movie and you're still listening, there's a scene where Rick is being strung up in the gallows in a Cairo prison. And while this is going on, Evelyn is bartering with Warden God Hassan to save Rick so that he can help her find the City of the Dead. As she's negotiating, the noose is placed around Rick's neck, and he's dropped through the trapdoor. Eventually, Evelyn makes a deal with God Hassan, and he shouts for the prison guards to cut Rick down just in time. Aside from being a really good masterclass in the art of suspense in film, this scene was almost a huge disaster. And... To be clear, Frazier wasn't actually tied to a noose and then dropped through a trapdoor in the scene. They had a stuntman attached to a harness that took his place for the fall through the trapdoor. But, because of movie magic and editing, Frazier still had to then, after the drop happens, they switch him out, he has to put on a noose, and then do a... so they can show the close-up of him, where he's being hung. On the first take, things went fine. Frazier did what actors do, and he acted like he was choking. But it wasn't really convincing. So, Stephen Summers requested another take with a little bit more tension on the rope. Just a little and bit that's more. And that's what you want to hear as an actor. When you have a noose around your neck. They're like, can you just tighten that up yeah. a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. Can you sign this, by the way, Brendan, just, just, just in case? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no. Now, the kidnapping insurance didn't yeah. cover if it was the actual director of the movie yeah. who fucked you up. It was only if someone else took you and did it. Yeah, so Frazier agreed, but this is where things went wrong. So when Summers called action, the stuntman took up the tension on the rope, as he was told to, and Frazier stood up on the balls of his feet. The camera started rolling, and Frazier decided to play up the choking effect. Um, he stood up on the balls of his feet and took three really deep breaths so that his face would turn purple and the veins would pop out of his neck. So he, he's like, I'll really fucking sell it. You know, I'll really do this. But so after he rose up on his feet, the stuntman noticed there was some additional slack in the rope and he took up the tension again. Yeah. So basically after he, after he like gets on his tiptoes, basically they go, Oh, this rope is loose again. And they pull it up. But he's unable to stand on his tiptoes, and the rope actually begins to cut off his carotid artery. So everybody's looking around, and they're like, holy shit, he's playing this scene really well. The director's <laughs> like, oh my god, this is awesome. The crew, and you have to be silent, obviously, because you're filming sound, and you're doing all that. But they're just like, man, he's doing great, but he's actually choking. Yeah, they're thinking, how the fuck is he doing that? So he said he remembers seeing 
the camera start to pan around, and then it was like a black iris at the end of a silent film. It was like turning down the volume switch on your home stereo, like the Death Star in that scene where it's powering down. Frazier actually stopped breathing for 18 seconds, and he had to be revived by the crew's on-site medical staff. When he, 18 seconds is a long time. Yeah. When he regained consciousness, finally, the medical team was hovering over him, and he had no recollection of what had just happened. So somebody comes to him and says, they had to come and resuscitate you, and it's a good thing you hit the ground sideways because it started your heart again. So literally, it had to do with how he fell. If he had not fallen in a certain way, he could have completely died. Later, he was asked about how he felt about, you know, almost dying. And he said, quote, I feel like we would all feel like this. I didn't like it, and it hurt. So, yeah. And while Frazier's on record as blaming Summers for the incident, Summers insists that it was Frazier's fault. Summers has said, Brendan is totally to blame. He tightens the noose, and then as we're about to get the shot, he's trying to make it look like it's really strangling him. I guess it cuts off his carotid artery or whatever and knocked him out. He did it to himself. Could you be any less laissez-faire about that? But at the same time, I was about to say that they kind of seem to have a joking relationship more about who caused the incident. Obviously, if you're reading it on paper and it's not necessarily displayed in the right context, it can look like a douchey thing, but they seem to have kind of a joking thing about it. But Brendan Fraser was like, I guess it's technically my fault because he's my director and I listened to him and I did a good job. Yeah. (laughs) So they they kind of (laughs) joke back and forth with it, but no matter whose fault it was, it worked out. And the footage of Fraser actually choking is the take that made it into the final cut of the movie. And they obviously have a good relationship to this day. They went on to make The Mummy Returns. They've returned for chats about the past, about the film, and everything's good. So while Brendan Fraser nearly choking to death was not a special effect, there were a lot of special effects in this movie. This movie is, it follows in the footsteps of The Matrix and uh, Star Wars and a lot of other films of this year. And honestly, I think it goes above and beyond those films in, in a lot of ways. And like, to put this into some perspective, the filmmakers spent $15 million on special effects. And when you look back and consider that the original budget for the movie was $10 million total, 15 mil on special effects alone is a lot. Yeah, it is. Um, And as usual, I think it will be a surprise when this is not the case. Most of the special effects in the movie were provided by Industrial Light and Magic. And they were provided under the leadership of ILM's visual effects supervisor, John Andrew Burton Jr., who, if you look him up, looks like he is made of visual effects. He is an interesting looking guy. Uh, he actually has a small acting role in one of the Men in Black movies. So there you go. You can you can watch, I think, Men in Black 2 and you'll see him. But um, anyway, unless you're a total cinema nerd, John Andrew Burton Jr. probably does not sound very familiar to you. But you'll definitely recognize some of the movies that he's done special effects work on. It's an impressive list. Hook, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, The Mask, The Flintstones, which we talked about before... Casper, Men in Black, iRobot, and the 1997 remaster of A New Hope. So he's one of the motherfuckers responsible <laughs> for the do-backs that Again I complain about this. on every goddamn episode. <laughs> Damn it, John Andrew Burton Jr., you son of a bitch. But 
anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding a little bit, but <laughs> really, like he was so involved with the making of the mummy that the movie that we see on screen, like the character of the mummy in particular is as much Burton's as it is Summers or Arnold Vosloo's or anybody else associated with like, like he was directly responsible for the mummy creature that we get in this movie. Yeah, Summers and ILM were partners from the very beginning of this. There's a documentary on YouTube called Making of the Mummy. It's a short documentary um, that you can find. Uh, but ILM was there from the very start of the project. The partnership led to an aligned vision for the monster that we see on the screen in its final form. Um, early in the production, Summers and the film producers decided that they really wanted their iteration of the mummy to have a new look. Specifically, they wanted to avoid drawing comparisons to the older, campier mummy movies, and they wanted to move away from the image of the crusty dude shuffling around in bandages um, from the 19th. Yeah, they didn't just want him to look like another guy walking around Venice Beach. <laughs> you know, they wanted they wanted something fresh. I feel like I really need to emphasize that point, though, because when I was watching the segment in this making of segment, Summer said some version of didn't want to see a guy wrapped in bandages about like 1600 times bro it got so tiring yeah. hearing him say that shit oh my god oh my god he also said repeatedly that his version of the mummy was very 90s which he meant as a positive thing but basically that comment translated to there's a lot of cgi and it doesn't look like something you could buy at the uh spirit halloween store which unfortunately <laughs> none of us will be able to do this year so as they're not opening but bro come on this is the perfect year for spirit halloween I know, store i know it's the one year where everyone should be wearing a mask hey there we go yes that's their new tagline that should be spirit halloween stores because everybody should be wearing a fucking mask yep anyway there was this general idea that universal didn't simply want to remake the classic boris karloff movie they wanted to put literally everything they had into it and that's, and that's where, why they went through 17,000 writers and directors exactly. before they got to Summers. And so that's where ILM comes into the picture. Right from the get-go, Burton and his effects team were on board with Summers' vision for a mummy that felt much more alive. Um, he agreed that the mummy should be mean, tough, nasty, something that had never been seen by an audience before. And at the time, really hadn't been seen by an audience before. But he also was committed to taking Summers' ideas further. According to an interview with Burton, ILM is known for always trying to do something new and different in every single film they work on. This is true. Their goal is to bring something to the film that adds value above and beyond just providing some top-tier special effects. Summers, who up until this point in his career was used to challenging his crews, said that ILM actually challenged him to push the boundaries even further than what he was asking for. Yeah, it was a really effective collaborative relationship. And I, I think that's going to become very clear through the next few minutes on the podcast, the stuff that we're about to talk about. Um, because as soon as Universal, Summers, ILM all got on the same page, Burden and his team started developing the look for the mummy. Um, and that was around February of 1998, which was three months before principal photography started on the movie. Um, and before Arnold Vosloo had even been cast as the monster yeah right so they don't even know who's going to play the mummy yet they're starting to build it and this process begins with pencil drawing standard 2d stuff on pieces of paper i know you got to think back to the way way back times to remember what 
like paper and pencils looked like, but <laughs> they were these physical things that you used to create images. It was fucking wild. <laughs> anyway, they made a bunch of pencil drawings and ILM's artists just drew a bunch of different versions of mean, nasty mummies. And they had this big stack of drawings and they sent it over to Steven Summers and they said, look at all this shit and figure out what you like and what you don't like. So Steven Summers leaves through the big stack of mummy drawings he goes, I like the neck on this one. I like the eyes on that one. I like the jaw on that one. I like the ball sack on that one. This is what I want my final mummy creature to look like, right? And so he pulls all these parts and pieces and they get a final composite version of the mummy and they sketch it up just how he envisioned it. The drawing is approved. And around the same time that the drawing is approved, Vosloo gets cast as the actor who's going to portray the mummy on screen. So at this point, they go, okay, we got to get this pencil drawing and this guy to be the same thing. And obviously, you can't go changing what Vaslu looks like. So they start looking at the drawings again, and they scan Arnold Vaslu's headshots into the computer and use digital painting to kind of mock up all the rot and all the other gross shit that makes him so spooky in the final movie. So you'll remember, like, he's got the holes in his face and all that kind of weird, grotesque stuff going on in the final picture. This is the first stage at which they mocked that up. Um, and their final activity during this stage, with those things drawn onto his face, is to figure out their, quote, grossness threshold, which is, I think, something very funny. Um, the studio wanted the mummy to be more sinister and realistic than it ever had been before, but they also didn't want it to be gory. And the two things that they said in particular that they wanted to stay away from were blood and fluids, which is interesting because if you think of like a gross monster, you're going to have at least one of those two things. And if you, if you watch this movie and pay a lot of careful attention, there's pretty much no blood anywhere. Yeah. There's a lot of grotesque shit that happens, but the only blood that you really get in the movie is when the blood plague comes down and the fountain in the bar and the shots are turned to blood but like when people die there's no blood so it's despite the fact that they say the mummy looks juicy when they first take him out I of his casket there's looks... not a lot of fluid in the movie god i hate it when these things do that is he supposed to look like that no i've never seen a mummy look like this before he's, he's still still juicy, juicy. yes they wanted to make a stylized version of Vaslu's face that looked old, dried out, and rotted, but not gross. A very fine line to walk here. So with this grossness threshold determined, the next step was to create the maquettes. Uh, for those of you that don't know, a maquette is basically a small rough draft version of a 3D character. Because anytime they had to basically combine a real actor with cgi and with all of the rotting effects that they were going to have and it's interesting so sculptors typically use them to test their ideas before they blow a bunch of time and money on a full-scale piece to make sure that they can fully get it right and make sure that it's going to come out to what they want it to be um in visual effects maquettes are used as a reference point for digital artists and painters to study real world lighting shading and such so which they later apply to their computer models so ILM made a series of maquettes of the titular mummy character and had them approved by Summers. So one way that you can think about this is like 
on the Luxo Jr. episode, we talked about the fact that John Lasseter modeled his actual lamp on his desk, right? So he had a model in front of him, and he could see how the light was shining on that lamp, and then that's what they recreated in the computer, right? The maquettes do the same thing. So because nobody had a real mummy sitting on their desk, they had to make a tiny fake one. And then they, you know, shown a flashlight on it from this direction or that direction or whatever, so that they wouldn't have to just guess what it was going to look like in the real world. They could actually figure it out by using lights and physical space. So the final stage was then to turn those physical models into the digital ones that we see in the film. So the CGI version of Imhotep was built one layer at a time over the course of about three months, which started with a skeleton, and then it worked its way up to the version that we see on screen. Once the actual structure of his skeleton was completed, the team started modeling Imhotep's skeletal movements. From there, they then started to add the muscle, taking special care to connect them to the skeleton at anatomically correct locations that they'd observed in anatomy books. So kind of similar to how we talked about in Tarzan, how they studied the anatomy of a human being so that he could be as close to uh, an actual representation of a human being's like muscular system. Right. And if you didn't know this already, your muscles aren't just hanging out on top of your bones. They actually connect to your bones in different places. Exactly. And so they wanted to make sure that the places where your real muscles connect to your real bones match the places where his digital muscles connected to his digital bones. So at the time, ILM didn't have the software or calculating power to figure out how much each of the mummy's individual muscles impacted one another. So once the layers were added to the skeleton, they had to manually test their movements and do some fine-tuned tweaking to make sure the muscles didn't move through each other in weird, like, unnatural ways. So they couldn't get it 100% accurate, which you can see if you watch in some of the test footage, but it got really, really fucking close. It, it looks pretty damn good. Yeah. And up next, we, of course, need to add skin. To create the mummy's realistic skin... Um, ILM used something called skinning software, which sounds counterintuitive because skinning, we typically think of as taking the skin off of something. But the skinning software was to put skin on things. It was developed by an animator named John Anderson using a process called procedural animation. And I'm not an animator. Jared's not an animator. We, we did our best to understand this so that we could explain yes. it to you. <laughs> Basically, there's a complicated way that this technology works and i'm not one of the people who understands those complications so in layman's terms procedural animation is used to automatically generate animation or movements in real time based on a bunch of predefined points and movements um so basically if point a is going over here point b must be going over here by default right so it kind of says if this point is going to place a this point is going to place b and so you don't have to animate both things individually you just do point a and point b follows automatically um it's used a lot for things like smoke or fire or water or cloth or hair or fur all those things that they were trying to work out for jar jar in episode one <laughs> or for the water in a bug's life all that kind of stuff is what this procedural animation really helps with because it goes okay well if this part of the smoke is going over here this particle of smoke is going to go over here and that just makes sense so that's what they did for the skin 
Uh, procedural animation was used to automatically fill the volume between the skin and the bones with actual flesh, right? So as you know, you have flesh like in your arm. It's not just your skin sitting on top of your muscle. There's other shit going on in there. If you're like me and you eat In-N-Out Burger all the time, there's a lot of other <laughs> shit going on in there. Same. Right? So there's all this area. <laughs> And then your skin is stretched over that area. So the procedural animation for Emotep was basically defining the points where the muscles were and defining the points where the skin was going to attach. And then all of those things were predefined and the pathways kind of organically filled in based on everything else. So the skin was like, so the skin was essentially automatically generated once they figured out where it was going to sit on top of the muscles and the flesh. Um, and the software kind of created a cool effect because of that, because the, the animation is happening automatically based on what is around it in terms of data. If you have a muscle and you move your arm, you can actually see that muscle moving underneath the skin, just like you would in real life, because the 3d data of the muscle is taking up space that the skin animation cannot then occupy. So the skin always stayed on top of the muscles and bones. It never like dipped into the muscle or did anything weird like that. And nobody had to do any manual animation to get that to happen. So it, it saved a shitload of time and it looked a lot more realistic. So that that's how they created the base layer for the skin. On top of that, the animators used digital painting to make like an even richer, more realistic look so they gave the skin some variations right like if you look at your arms right now whoa right they're <laughs> like different slightly different color on top than they are on the bottom there's shading there's all that kind of stuff right there's inconsistencies and so they digitally painted all of that stuff on so you had this combination of digital painting automated skin and you got something very realistic looking um and at the end of the day the 3d model was so detailed because of all these layers of muscle and skin and bone and flesh that it almost broke the renderer when they tried to stitch it together for the final image. Jeez. Like if you've ever if you've ever saved a big file on your computer, you know how it starts to struggle sometimes, right? Think about how big this file was, right? And so that it it almost actually broke the machine. Like even thinking about that on a computer of that size that's calibrated to do bigger files like that not just a desktop computer trying to save like like when i save a large podcast file it takes a few minutes for it to fully process it maybe takes a second but it still gets there now imagine like trying to do all of that but on like a supercomputer that's dedicated to animation and dedicated and has the processing speed the fact that it's still almost close to crashing it i mean that's nuts that's so much well, detail. we talked about this with toy story too they weren't working with top of the line computers. Like your MacBook today probably has more power than the computer they were using That's true. to do this back then. That's a good point. I guess I'm so thinking there was, more in modern terms now. So so like there this shit was was rough. Yeah. But you'd think at this point that with everything we just went over, that Imotep would be ready for the big screen. But you have to remember, as we've brought up in other episodes, ILM doesn't just settle for a job well done. They push the boundaries with everything that they do. So, Burton set out on an incredibly difficult task, achieving lifelike human motion. And to do this, he and his team created a unique blend of computer graphics and live-action cinematography. 
So, they started by using motion capture to replicate Vosloo's real-life performance. So after principal photography had wrapped up in London, ILM and Vosloo spent two days in motion capture. And you know what that is. The green screen, the black morph suit, ping pong balls. We've all seen the video of Benedict Cumberbatch crawling around as uh, the oh, dragon. Jesus. It's, 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 it's awesome. It's so great. Um, Disturbing is another term that I've used to describe <laughs> that video. Um, over the course of that two days, they replicated every scene he'd already filmed over the last six months. Using seven different cameras, the crew filmed Vosloo from all angles. Then they viewed the mocap takes in real time over the backgrounds from the actual footage to make sure that everything was going to fit it properly. While this process was initially quite new for Vosloo, at one point it clicked and he said, don't even bother explaining it to me, just tell me what you want me to do physically. Yeah, at the beginning he was kind of like, wait, what? What do you want me to do? Why do I need to do that? And then he started to trust these guys because he could tell that they knew what the hell they were doing. Exactly. So finally, he's just like, fuck it. You want me to go over there? I'll go over there. Just tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. I'm on. And it'll make sense later on. Yeah. So motion capture went a long way in making the CGI mummy's movements resemble those of the actors who portrayed him. However, ILM still wasn't done pushing the envelope. Their next challenge was capturing Vosloo's more complex movements, such as facial expressions, finger gestures, like any little twitches that he maybe makes when he's moving around, capturing every little detail. If you want to think about it like this, like the mocap makes the mummy look like a person, but capturing these finer details makes the mummy look like this specific person. Exactly. So ILM uses character animation to fine-tune the mummy's facial expressions and hand movements, carefully studying Vosloo's real-life performance and translating that to the fully CGI character. But Burton and his team went to great lengths to mesh live-action with CGI in never-before-seen ways. So, as you'll remember, there are a few scenes in this movie where Vosloo, not his CGI counterpart, shows signs of rot or contorts his face in unusual ways. Like when he opens his mouth up, but it contorts <laughs> in a weird extra way. extra wide screams. Yeah, when he lets out the scream, or you see his face and it's like rotted just on his mouth. So picture that, or even picture that scene where the scarab crawls out through the hole in his cheek and then back into the hole in his cheek and then he bites down and eats it. So, th Dude, that scene looks really fucking cool even by today's Yeah, standards. absolutely. So these scenes in particular posed a unique challenge, and ILM was determined to push the envelope by designing effects that looked so advanced, so astounding, that there was no way they could ever be done with prosthetics. And so the solution to this was to produce a marriage of makeup and computer graphics. This had been done in various degrees in cinema up to this point, but nobody had really ever tried to do it on the same scale that Burton and his team were about to try it for Vosloo. And so to help them achieve all this stuff, they went out and hired this really talented makeup artist whose name was Nick Dudman. And um, you probably wouldn't recognize his name again unless you're a huge cinema nerd, um, but he had just finished leading the creatures and makeup effects department on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, mm -hmm. which, as we've talked about already, has lots of creatures and makeup effects. So, um, so Nick comes in, and before Vosloo performs his live action takes in a few of the scenes, particularly the scarab crawling in and out scene, the crew physically affixed actual hardware to his face. So they basically put like this Tron looking plate on his face and <laughs> neck. Um, you can look at pictures of it online. It's like a little triangular kind of grid looking faceplate. 
And these things were motion trackers. And they were put in the spots where he would eventually appear to have the holes in his flesh. And the hardware had sensors in them. And it made it possible for ILM's animating team to track his head in 3D on the set in real time as he was acting. So you have the real person doing the real movements. But there's basically like a placeholder on his face for where animation is going to go. You can think about it like that. And so for Vosloo, he said, quote, this was a whole new thing for him. They had to put these little red tracking lights all over my face so they could map in the special effects. A lot of the time I was walking around the set looking like a Christmas tree. (laughs) And that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but he did have like a lot of shit stuck to his face, which I could imagine would make acting in an organic way kind of challenging. Absolutely. Um, So in the meantime, Nick Dudman was using actual makeup to kind of try to blend the edges around those sensors as best he could because he knew that the animators and painters were going to have to go in later and make sure that his real skin matched whatever skin they painted on in the After Effects, right? Um, And so he did this like really careful blending technique to make sure that everything matched up perfectly. And the result that you see on the screen is a really seamless blend of live-action camera work with CGI effects. So according to Burton, quote, When you see his film image, that's him. When he turns his head and half of his face is missing and you can see right through onto his teeth, that's really his face. And that's why it was so hard to do. The C- I mean, the CGI is just amazing in this. And we're going we're gonna to keep going on with the CGI because while that pretty much covers Imhotep, the movie relied on CGI for a lot more than just the mummy himself. And one example of this is, if you hear that sound, scarabs. While scarabs are a real kind of beetle, think like June bugs, the scarabs you see in the movie are more of a CGI hybrid of several other real insects created specifically for this franchise. So, while they're small and relatively simple, the insects posed a couple of tough challenges for the special effects team. The first of these challenges was mastering the lighting and shaders required to create realistic-looking scarabs that were both black and iridescent. The second was the sheer number of scarabs that were required in each scene. If you remember, like, the scene where they pour the scarabs into Emotech's sarcophagus in the movie, it it's not, like, one. It's a lot. And so... Kind of think like similar to the dust particles on Wheezy's shelf that we talked about in Toy Story 2, the animators on The Mummy did not want to have to animate a shitload of scarabs individually. So instead, they animated specific pathways for a few what they called hero scarabs. Basically the first to tumble into the coffin and run onto the guy's face. Then, rather than animating the rest of them individually, they use a particle system to achieve the animation required for the rest of the insects. Under a typical particle... What's a particle system, Jared? That's a good question. So under a typical particle system, particles start from a defined 3D object called an emitter. The location of the emitter determines where the particles are generated and where they move. So animators set a bunch of predetermined behaviors for particles, such as the spawning rate, aka how many particles are generated per unit of time, the particle's initial velocity vector the direction they are emitted upon creation, and the particle lifetime, or the length of time each individual particle exists before disappearing. So in this case, the jar was the emitter, the scarabs were the particles, and the behaviors were the randomized scurrying motions they did once they were poured into the sarcophagus. 
So rather than animating a shitload of beetles, the animators only had to model inside the sarcophagus and the body of the mummy inside. The scarabs, or the particles, could then interpret that data and run around in a random pattern without doing weird shit like running into the body or outside the walls of the box. It's, it's so impressive that this is really the beginnings of modern like CGI. Obviously, there's certain things that predated that if you want to go into special effects and early computer animation, but this is like integrating CGI into a real-life element, and that's so fascinating to look at. Yeah, some of the... I mean, they people had used particle animation a little bit leading up to this movie um, for things like smoke and shit like that in, in earlier movies, but this was kind of a, a different application for it. That, that idea of, like, here's your sandbox, here are your boundaries, do whatever you got to do in this area. And so there were other complicated CGI elements in this movie uh, that did rely on particle systems. So this includes the swarm of locusts that Emotep calls from the desert and that sandstorm that enters after O'Connell's plane, the one where you see his face in the sand. So both of these scenes use that same system, although there are actually a handful of real grasshoppers that are used in the locust scene. Um, and it's really weird to read this, but the grasshoppers were kept chilled in a refrigerator, and it was so <laughs> that they would be slower and easier to wrangle. So the actors are sweating their balls off without any meanwhile, air conditioning. The and meanwhile, these grasshoppers, get, grasshoppers are chilling get, out. Yeah, they get air conditioning. They're like in the trailer. Dude, the <laughs> grasshoppers have it made, dude. Not only do they get air conditioning, but they have ants picking their food for them. They don't have to do a goddamn I, thing for I themselves. See another tie-in. <laughs> but finally, in terms of the CGI... Brendan Fraser's really epic fight scene at the end of this movie was one of the most complex CGI sequences filmed for this movie. Yeah, I mean, dude, this scene is awesome. It's kind of the culmination, the climax of the movie when he's fighting, what, it, like it's 11 or 12 or something like that, mummified priests that Imhotep is controlling. And it's so badass. And like... It really kind of ties back into that, like, Ray Harryhausen, Sinbad, oh, totally. Indiana Jones, um, Evil Dead, like we talked about before. It ties back into that sort of, like, action hero, but also, like, scary, but also kind of silly. And it it's such a great scene. And when you watch that scene, it looks real, right? Like, obviously, you can tell that they're not real, but, like, the, the way that it's choreographed is amazing. And... I would not have bet money on this, but believe it or not, Brendan Fraser is swinging at literally nothing Yeah, in that scene. So he is swinging the sword at nothing, he's punching at nothing, he's kicking at nothing. And what I mean by that is literally nothing. So how did they pull that off? Well, first, the crew partnered with a famous action director named Simon Crane, and he worked out the entire action sequence that you see in that scene which is basically Brendan Fraser hopping all around that like table where the sarcophagus is. Over a period of several weeks, Crane, Summers, and Burton all worked together to figure out the fight choreography, and then they trained stuntmen to perform it on set. So the stuntmen were trained to do what the CGI mummies would eventually be doing on screen. Once the stuntmen were trained, then they brought Brendan Fraser in and taught him the fight choreography with the stuntmen in place. So he practiced the scene 
over and over and over and over again, swinging at the stuntmen, punching at the stuntmen, kicking at the stuntmen. Then, on the day of the shoot, they did two different takes of the scene. The first one had the stuntmen standing in for the CGI mummies, and they filmed it with Brendan Fraser swinging at all these guys. The second take, the stuntmen were gone. And so Brendan Fraser is literally swinging around at nothing. <laughs> not a guy in a morph suit, not a cardboard Thanos head. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing there. And this scene was very new for him. Um, although he'd learned about working with digital creatures on George of the Jungle to an extent, like, this was a whole new ball game, right? So, so they got the footage of Brendan Fraser swinging around at the empty room, which... To me, I think of like the Star Wars kid in the garage, right? <laughs> to bring it back to Arrested Development, the scene that George Michael <laughs> recreates. And so so they get that footage. And then later in motion capture, ping pong balls, morph suits, green screens, all that fun stuff. The stuntmen look at what Brendan Fraser actually ended up doing on screen. And then they motion capture their choreography to line up with what he actually filmed on the day. And so... Based on that combination, you have Brendan Fraser performing the choreography, you have the stuntmen doing their choreography, but slightly adjusted to match what actually happened on the screen, and then you have those two things put together so that it looks like Brendan Fraser is actually fighting off this army of undead mummies. And what's really cool about that is, like, in that scene, you'll notice, like, when he swings his sword at a mummy, he goes full fucking send, and it goes right through the body, Right? And the reason that that happens is that there was nothing in the way of the sword when he was filming the scene. Previously, in scenes like this, he would have hit a stuntman with that sword. And so you would see the sword stop, but the mummy would still fall apart on the screen. In this case, he could just go fucking Jose Canseco right through that <laughs> motherfucker. And it didn't matter, right? And like when he punches or kicks, he follows through because there's nothing there in his way. So that makes him look like even more of a badass, even more of a strong action hero. And it makes the CGI end up looking better because it's more believable. It makes me love this movie even more, seeing all of the detail that goes into it with not just with the set design, but with, um, and like really pulling for the story, but with all of the individual little tiny details that went into the CGI to kind of translate this over to detail a little bit more. Let's talk about the symbolism, metal metaphors and illusions that are going on in this, because while there's not a ton of like metaphors for anything that we could really dig up, there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of allusions to other things. Um, I'm excited to dig into this part. I think we've covered a lot of the like Egyptology symbols and stuff like that yeah. based on the backstory. So we're not going to go into like, oh, well, you know, this vase looks like a real vase that they had back in Egypt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we're not going to go that crazy, but yeah. we are going to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So one of the background extras as like a fun little aside um, one of the background extras can be seen wearing a cloak that was originally worn by Sir Alec Guinness during the filming of Star Wars. And this was only discovered after filming was complete. Kind of like how uh, there's a story where Steven Spielberg was told one day at home, they called him and said, oh my God, you need to turn on the TV. Go to The Walking Dead right now on AMC. And they show uh, the governor's fish tank and how it has the head in it and he goes oh my god they found it that's the head from jaws 
uh, like <laughs> shit like that. Like little things would pop up. Um, but yep, when George Lucas was watching the Mummy, he goes, "Now that's a cloak I haven't seen in a long time." <laughs> Many of the plastic dummies that were used to depict Imhotep's victims were previously featured in 1985's Life Force film. Now the biggest comparison that this film has gotten that I've made to this film is that a lot of people will pull constant comparisons between this film and Indiana Jones. Oh yeah. There's allusions to Indiana Jones all over the place. So speaking of Indiana Jones, there's actually something from the series in the mummy and really, what is that? So it's the antique biplane that was used during the sandstorm sequence, according to, and I discovered this and it made me, it made me giggle. According to the Mummy's own wiki page called Rickypedia. God damn it. I'm surprised the Rick and Morty people haven't I'm burned su- that to the ground and taken it's it for probably themselves. probably like Mortypedia or something like that. Um, or Meeseekspedia or something. Anyway. Uh, but that's a good point. Um, this was the same plane that was used by Indiana Jones and Henry Jones Sr. to escape the Nazis in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, I don't know if this was the actual like plane from the film but it's the same exact model which was allegedly and i know nothing about planes this is the the name and the model that was provided but a de havilland dh 82 tiger moth that really rolls off the tongue doesn't it so there are definitely nods to the indiana jones series throughout this film we talked at the start of this about how there's all these similarities to the story of uh, king tut and the curse and all of that and we're not going to go into that specifically, but there are some cool little production design things that were pointed out and noticed by um, a WordPress author named Campbell at Manchester. And it was on a website for the Egypt at Manchester Museum WordPress. And so this writer noted that the team at ILM actually worked with Egyptologist Dr. Stuart Tyson Smith to make sure that a number of details throughout the film were correct, despite a number of other historical inaccuracies that are noted throughout the film. That was taken down by <laughs> critics later on. But what are some of those historical inaccuracies? Like the mummies, like the mummies don't actually come to life. Yeah. So I didn't Hominoptera is not a real place. I didn't dig too far into the historical inaccuracies as the article decided to do. It said, I don't want to focus on that. I actually want to point out some of the things that were done right. So just little details like that. Um, you can tell that article was not written in 2020 because they chose to focus on positive things instead of negative. It actually things. was I think it was written in 2017, believe it or not. So Yeah, it was a different time. Yeah, true, different time. But so, anyway, yeah, it points out a lot of different little details and things like that that you can see. Some of those details are the wrappings applied to Imhotep in the very beginning of the film when he's being mummified are pretty damn accurate, all the way down to the herringbone weave pattern that appears on his torso. Um, in the library where we meet Evelyn uh, just before she knocks over all the shelves in the library, like some kind of klutz. Uh, the binders that line the walls are actually imitation field reports uh, by the EES or the Egypt Exploration Fund, which was soon changed to the Egypt Exploration Society. Um, the film was set in 1926, so the logo was changed from EEF to EES because it, they needed it to fit exactly in the time period. So the reports themselves were from the Egypt Exploration Fund, but then they looked at it and were like, Okay, well, these are reports, and they look good, but 
they don't have the exact title so we need to change the title to fit this you can't and that's the thing though you can't really see this on film at all it's such a yeah, I was gonna say I never would have yeah, noticed that so in it's a years. small tiny detail but it makes me again respect it so much more because of all of the detail that the production design and the art department brought forth to make sure everything kept you inside of this film um, even in just the simplest little ways. Yeah, there's even a, a little detail when they board the riverboat to Hamanoptera from Giza. Um, Evelyn is reading a book during her journey, and the book is called The Dwellers of the Nile by E.A. Wallace Budge, published in 1885. And his work is not considered well-regarded today. Uh, I could have told you that because I've never heard of that motherfucker. <laughs> but it would have made complete sense for Egyptology scholars to read Budge in the 1920s. Uh, there's also a scene where the camera pans down a carved obelisk and then onto Emotep when he's leading a mob of slaves covered in boils and disfigurements. The obelisk depicts Seth, the god of chaos and disorder. See, I thought Seth was the god of smoke and weed and being from Canada, but that's <laughs> my god, Seth, Seth Rogen. Um, well, Seth isn't exactly given much screen time. <laughs> oh my god, uh, you so well. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I, I, I can do the laugh pretty yeah. well. Um, that's what happens when you look just like him. You can laugh like him, too. It's a fun trick. Um, Dr. Tyson Smith also helped with another big part of this film, which was the language, um, particularly the ancient Egyptian language that's noted at the beginning of the film. He reconstructed the ancient Egyptian dialogue in this film and in the Mummy sequel. And it should be noted that he had to reconstruct them because, and I didn't even know this, it's actually unknown um, how to speak and properly pronounce Egyptian dialect since the vowels, or since vowels were not written into hieroglyphics. They just had the people saw, you can see the words. And people can decipher that, but you can't actually understand the dialect of it because it was never, for lack of a better word, spelled out. Um, and I thought that was interesting. So they had to, I guess he had done consulting work on another film before this with helping reconstruct a language. Um, and so they brought him in and he was in charge of making sure that all of that translated over well. Let's talk about release and reception. So according to an Entertainment Weekly article from May of 1999, quote, The high-tech remake of the Boris Karloff classic starring Brendan Fraser may be Universal's only hope this summer. The article goes on to say that while, quote, It is worth noting that its sound effects are still under construction just two weeks before the picture's release, The Mummy could be the film that finally revives Universal from its own somnambulant slump. What does somnambulant mean? Don't worry, I did you and everyone listening to this a favor of looking up what somnambulant meant, because I'd never seen that word before in my fucking life, and it's an adjective meaning resembling or characteristic of a sleepwalker, sluggish. While Universal had a couple of recent successes, like Patch Adams, I think the year before, um, and a few promising films on the horizon, like Notting Hill, which we'll talk about next week, The Mummy was kind of the perfect combination of size and spectacle that they needed to represent the studio's comeback uh which was hopefully going to be imminent after the just dismal failure of babe pig in the city um and so that meant that the mummy had very high expectations but of course the typical big hollywood studio attitude says there's no interest in this stephen summers was actually quoted as saying the studios always do tests, and nobody had any interest in seeing a mummy movie, as we were finding out. And I'm like, 
as he's laughing, oh my god, what have I done? And Arnold Vosloo even said, when I came back, my friends were like, why the fuck did you do a mummy movie? And everybody was like, what are you... People were questioning it. But all of that changed on Super Bowl Sunday, 1999. After the Super Bowl, when the dust clears, on May 7th, there's still one more score to settle. This just keeps getting better and better. This film is not yet rated. A 30-second spot aired midway through the Super Bowl, and this got everyone's attention. Summers said it went from nobody wanting to see The Mummy to the next day, the studio was on fire. We thought, man, this film could do $20 million. That would have been a pretty big opening. And later on, it's kind of funny that he notes this after the film is released, like on that Friday night. He gets a call from the president of Universal, and it just says, like, hey, so I want you to know, the movie's going to open at $45 million. Congratulations. <laughs> so it worked out. Um, nice. Yeah. And just so you know, the Denver Broncos smoked the fucking Atlanta Falcons I, in the Super Bowl I know Bowl nothing about football, so. 34 to 19. <laughs> Mike Shanahan versus Dan Reeves. The showdown. Flies over my head. I, 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 I go, I go for the food. Um, and depending on who's playing the halftime show, but so now what else have we talked about in a number of these past episodes surrounding hype for these films? Uh, porn adaptations. No, we haven't done that, but that would be kind of funny. There's probably a few of those from 1999, Sadly, no, we, we, we talked about toys. Yeah. And so this is a movie that also had action figures, not as crazy as like, Tarzan or a Disney movie. Yeah, no, there were no jacking off Rick <laughs> no. O'Connell's like there were jacking off Tarzan. No, there was nothing like that. Uh, but <laughs> the mummy had action figures, and May third, nineteen ninety nine, actually ended up, ends up being a very important day in the history of toy collectors because it's the day that all the toys for Episode One: The Phantom Menace went on sale. But not only did fans see toys from Star Wars. They were greeted by action figures spanning the likes of none other than Rick O'Connell, Imhotep, and the whole gang of characters. So a company called Toy Island manufactured the toys, going up against Hasbro with Star Wars, and they produced eight 6-inch action figures, two 12-inch action figures, um, both electronic. I think they were one was Rick O'Connell, and then one was Imhotep as, like, the disfigured mummy. And then there were three play sets of, like, the tomb and... Um, Hominoptera and things like that. So it had a little bit of a market. These expectations we're referring to were largely met. Yeah, so The Mummy debuted on May 7th, 1999, smack dab in the middle of summer blockbuster season. And in that opening weekend, the movie made $43 million in 3,210 theaters in the U.S. and Canada. So that was pretty goddamn good. Hell of a lot better than Babe Pig in the City's opening weekend, if we're going to compare <laughs> universal numbers, right? It was so big, in fact, that it was the highest non-holiday May opening of all time. And I believe that it still is, if I'm not mistaken. So by the end of its run, The Mummy was the sixth highest grossing film of 1999, making more than $515 million worldwide. That's awesome. Which is pretty excellent. But there's also kind of a fun story about The Mummy's L.A. premiere. 
And this ties back to the curse of Tutankhamun that we talked about way back at the beginning of this episode, yeah. if you can remember back that far. So at the L.A. premiere, the film projector broke down midway through the movie. And it was about 30 seconds after the scene where, spoiler alert, Omid the Jili's character dies. So apparently everyone's just sitting in the theater waiting to figure out what's going on. And Omid Jalili stands up <laughs> and he go and he tells the audience that after his death, the movie just goes downhill. So they're not missing much. <laughs> and that makes sense from the stand up comedian, you know, and apparently Kirk Douglas of all people who was at the premiere replied, you're full of shit, kid, sit down. I was in Spartacus. So, so, uh, so all that fun and games aside, some of the people in the theater, including the cast members, thought that this snafu was actually a sign that the mummy's curse had latched onto them after the movie. And if we're looking at like the ratings and the reviews, I don't think that it I think a sign that the curse would have latched onto them would have been if this movie just bombed. But it as we said, it made like 515 million worldwide. The mummy had essentially mixed reviews from critics when it came out, and I'm, I'm excited to dissect this a little bit because it got a 60% score on Rotten Tomatoes based on 98 reviews uh, with the assessment that it's difficult to make a persuasive argument about The Mummy as any kind of meaningful cinematic achievement, but it's undeniably fun to watch. At the same time, it got a 75% audience review score, and I think that speaks to a number of things. That, And I'm... I think it speaks to the fact that the critics didn't necessarily know what they were looking at in terms of an adventure film that was kind of a genre piece that wasn't a great, like, Oscar Academy Award winning film. Like, I'm, no one's expecting it to be that, but it didn't do it in such a cheesy or hokey way in, the, in a way that a lot of other movies had kind of done so previously before. Think about it like this. In and Out Burgers not getting a Michelin star anytime soon. But it's a fucking excellent restaurant. And it's because it's really good for what it is. And I think that, like, The Mummy is one of those popcorn movies, like Jurassic World or uh, Fast and the Furious or any of those things that, like, it's a really fun time at the movies. But it's definitely not going to get, like, an amazing critic response. Yeah. And so I pulled two reviews, um, I, as we always do, a positive one and a negative one. And I pulled Roger Ebert's. I've kind of fallen down a rabbit hole with Roger Ebert. He gave this movie like a three or a three and a half star review out of four stars. And he goes on to say as follows. There is within me an unslaked hunger for preposterous adventure movies. I resist the bad ones, but when a Congo or an Anaconda comes along, my heart leaps up and I cave in. The Mummy is a movie like that. There is hardly a thing I can say in its favor, except that I was cheered by nearly every minute of it. I cannot argue for the script, the direction, the acting, or even The Mummy, but I can say that I was not bored, and sometimes I was unreasonably pleased. There is a little immaturity stuck away in the crannies of even the most judicious of us, and we should treasure it. He goes on to say and close the interview or close the review with this. Look, art this isn't. Great trash, it isn't. Good trash, it is. It's not quite up there with Anaconda, but it's as much fun as Congo and The Relic, and it's better than Species. If these four titles are not intimately familiar to you, The Mummy might not be the best place to start. 
And he was the okay, per- that's a fair review. He was the perfect critic for this because he knew exactly what it was. Whereas another critic might have come in and would have said something like, "Oh, this is below me. This yeah, maybe there's some fun parts, but it's not a serious film." Like like you said, it's a popcorn film. And those can really be the best kinds. And and some some reviewers like the kind you just mentioned did come in and make some worse reviews. Yeah. And I one of those people is Owen Gleiberman yeah. of Entertainment Weekly. And I pulled this review specifically. I'll tell you at the end why I pulled this review. Owen Gleiberman says, In The Mummy, an aggressively eye-popping horror film, nothing remains in one shape for very long, least of all the face of evil. Back in the age when monster movies took the time to be suggestive about their terrors, the heroes tended to act brave and cocksure for, say, the first half hour or so. They may have been headed for Dracula's castle or King Kong's island, but since no one had a clue as to what unspeakable nightmare lay ahead, everyone could afford to beam, however briefly, with secular confidence. In the new version of The Mummy, which replaces the famous 1932 original's insidious, shadowed creepiness with the spiffiest of special effects, the characters start off with similar aplomb. When the monster begins to stalk, though, everyone stays chipper, even blasé, and so does the movie itself. There is much to look at. It's like spending two hours in Michael Jackson's Undead Neverland, but not a lot at stake. He continues, Written and directed by Stephen Summers, The Mummy would like to make you shudder, but it tries to do so without ever letting go of its jocular inconsequentiality. Holy shit. So I picked this review because, not just because I was trying to pull one positive and one negative review, but it's the one of the only reviews I had seen that reviewed it as a horror film. Yeah, that's interesting. If you watched this as a horror film, you'd probably be pretty disappointed. Yeah. But then again, if you watched the original Dracula, King Kong is a horror movie. I, I Like, in today's turn, like, if you watched them in the 40s and 50s or whatever, when they came out, you might be scared shitless. But if you... If you were to watch that in 1999, that wouldn't scare you either. No. So it's a weird comparison to draw a little bit, even though it's similar subject matter. I think at the same time, though, the the Dracula film and the Frankenstein films and the mummy films from that era weren't marketed and weren't made as horror or they were made as horror films. They weren't made as like horror with some action adventure, with some humor, with all this other stuff. It was strictly made for what it was supposed to be at the time, which was a horror picture. Well, now you'd see that now it would do nothing. Like I can, you'd obviously be able to watch all those movies and be like, huh, this is, that's cute that that was scary back then. But there's, I just thought it was the only review that I'd seen review it as a horror film. And I think it's an interesting criticism in the sense that I don't agree with it, but it's reviewing it as though it was a horror film, which is kind of what it was marketed as. Well, you got to think about it that way too, right? It's like these reviewers are plugged into what's going on from the very beginning. So this guy knows when he sees it, he knows about Romero. He knows about Craven. He knows about all these people who may have directed this. And so he's going in going, Stephen Summers, I don't know who the fuck that is, but here's the horror movie that I was told about five years ago, right? So I think that's that's one element of it that we have to think about. I do want to say that comment about spending two hours at Michael Jackson's Undead Neverland, but not that, like, but no, with nothing at stake, that, that comment did not end well because spending two hours at Michael Jackson's regular Neverland had a lot at stake. 
as we found out Yikes. as we found out this was this was pre finding all that out i think it was Jesus. i think it was pre the scandal with him i i can't remember but i'm i'm pretty sure it was before that happened but as we learned yes there was a lot at stake let's talk about Jesus. the legacy beyond 1990 <laughs> I'm going to think about whether I want to keep that in or not, because that was pretty fucking funny. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about the legacy beyond 1999. It's clear from everything that we talked about. The mummy's biggest impact on cinema moving forward was technology, right? Like the tools and the techniques that ILM either developed or mastered while they were working on this movie were leaps and bounds above anything that had been done before with CGI. And I'm like including the stuff that they also worked on in 1999. Like Star Wars came out, I think a week or two after the mummy did. Yeah. Something like that. And I would argue that the technology in the mummy was actually much more advanced because they were working on it after they had already done a lot of this shit for Star Wars. But anyway, it, it really like paved the way for particle effects and CG crowds and digital makeup and translating motion capture to CG characters and all those kinds of things that movies rely on almost 100% of the time today, right? Like, unless you're looking at, like, an art house movie, there's at least some element of CGI in almost everything. There. Absolutely. So, so that was a huge impact. But the technology didn't just leave an impact in terms of how they made the movie. It also left an impact on how the movie was screened. So I didn't know this, but the mummy was one of the first movies to actually be digitally screened in theaters in the U S. Um, and even then it only received digital screenings in a few theaters in LA and New York markets. Everything else was still film projection huh. for this movie. So, um, a handful of digital screenings had happened up to this point with other movies, but the mummy was really like an acceleration in the trend of digital screening. And at that time, people were unsure how it was actually going to work. And a lot of the industry leaders still felt that they were at least a year, maybe two away from having mainstream digital projection in theaters. And nowadays that's the dominant way that we see movies in theaters. Well, not nowadays when we were still allowed to go to theaters. Nowadays, the way we see movies in theaters is by paying $20 on Amazon and watching them at home. But yep. you get the idea. Yeah. And in addition to its contributions to technology, The Mummy is at least partially responsible for affecting the trajectory of cinema moving into the 2000s. So remember that Somers had set out to make an action-adventure-style film on par with the other legendary films that were in that genre. So like Indiana Jones, Jason and the Argonauts, Sinbad, things like that. But by many accounts, he succeeded. Critics have referred to The Mummy as the Indiana Jones for a new generation. Which I think is a little, a little extreme, I'm just going to say. Uh, the Australian outlet Junkie declared it the pivotal blockbuster of the 90s. Writers at Collider and Sci-Fi Wire have claimed that Brendan Fraser, quote, set the mold that other action hero characters have followed in the decades since. And a contributor at Looper says The Mummy, quote, helped to change the game for many action movies that would come after it. Um, and in many ways, it did. 
The Mummy achieved a unique blend of action, comedy, and horror, an effective formula that sparked what Screen Rant called something of a, rena of a renaissance for old-school-style Hollywood adventure films that led to releases like National Treasure, The Night at the Museum, and even a comeback from Indiana Jones himself. And, of course, it led to more monster movies. Steven Summers, after directing The Mummy and the Mummy Returns, went on to try and revamp another monster film, Van Helsing, in 2004, which starred Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale. I actually like Van Helsing. It's been a few years since I've seen it, but again, it's another movie where you take it for what it is. It's a popcorn film with monsters and uh, kind of a nonsense plot, but it is what it is. And... Ironically, in that same year, 2004, Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy was released, and The Mummy and its subsequent sequels really showed that people wanted more films like this. Well, dude, it's it's interesting that you say that, too, because like, I, I'm putting some of these comments together, right? Like, the, the idea of Brendan Fraser setting the mold for other action hero characters, and I, I think about kind of the combination of silliness and seriousness that we see with a lot of the Marvel heroes. Yeah. Right. And then there's also the fact that like the mummy and Frankenstein's monster and all of those characters had Marvel comics runs. They did. So there's kind of this interesting tie in of like the action. And I, I say this because Hellboy is obviously a comic book. So there's the tie in sort of between action hero to superhero and how that has melded into like one genre in the movies. At the same, I mean, there's even people who've claimed that this led to more horror comedy films. Like people have cited that Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland are obviously, while they take inspiration from zombie films and more Night of the Living Dead, it, they kind of see it as a product in a weird way of a film like The Mummy, given how it blended horror and comedy together in kind of one sitting. It's an it's more of an observation that people have made. So. And then, of course, there's the F word. Guess which one I'm talking about. French fries? No. Oh, franchise. Franchise. Yep, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> so there were two sequels to The Mummy. 2001's The Mummy Returns and 2008's The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which is one of those kind of weird oddball sequels that goes into a strange direction, but it's still kind of related to the movie. It was um, fun. I like it. I like it for what it is. I, you know, I haven't seen it, and I, I, I got to be honest, I don't exactly plan to anytime soon. Um, until we have been doing this podcast for 50 years and we get to 2008. But <laughs> anyway, um, it also led to a movie from 2002 called The Scorpion King, which was a prequel starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson in his debut role. And you know it's his debut role. Because there's a scene in the movie where he does the rock eyebrow raise. And that was just total fucking fan service. Scorpion King itself spawned some direct-to-video prequels um, and sequels. There were three sequels, to be exact, which is probably three too many. Yeah, they were, if we're being completely there honest. There was one direct-to-video, and then there were three additional direct-to-video sequels. But what's crazy, though is that you have actors that are appearing in these prequels and these sequel films. Michael Bean, Rudger Hauer, Billy Zane. I can't speak to the quality of the films as I haven't seen them, but I think it's still kind of cool to see these actors jumping on board with them. I mean, the movies could be total crap. I don't know. I haven't seen them. But to see, like, oh, shit, Michael Bean from, like, Alien and or Aliens and Terminator and shit, that's kind of cool. 
There was also an animated television series on the WB called The Mummy, the Animated Series. A really original name, (laughs) isn't it? And that had a whopping two seasons from 2001 to 2003. The series was animated by Don LaFontaine, who is the epic movie trailer voice guy. Um, And it also featured voiceover work from actors like Jim Cummings, who has done voices in every cartoon you've ever seen, uh, Gray Delisle, and Tom Kenny, who is SpongeBob SquarePants. And this is a total tangent, but I one time went to a panel at WonderCon when it was still in San Francisco, and Tom Kenny was on that panel, and somebody asked him how he did SpongeBob's laugh, and he recreated it for us in person, and it was horrifying. Because he what he does is he grabs his throat with both hands and he shakes the shit out of it. <laughs> and it's I cannot watch SpongeBob anymore because I just think of a grown man grabbing his own throat and shaking the shit out of it. And of course, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this film fell victim to the dreaded reboot. It was a reboot that got rebooted. Do you want to talk about this one? Because clearly this hit a nerve with you, like, very much. It, you know, if I have to, I will. In 2017, Universal tried to reboot the Mummy franchise again. And they dipped back into their old acting pool. And they pulled Tom Cruise out of the depths. And they said, you're going to be our lead man now. And it was considered a full-on reboot of the 1999 movie while also setting up Universal's Dark Universe, which would feature characters like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Spooky, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man. Not the Ralph Ellison one, either. The, the, the no, other that's one. a different Invisible Man. That's a, a yes, much different story. It is. I didn't know that until college, and I was very confused. Because we were like, they're like, we have to read the Invisible Man. And I was like, I don't see how this is on theme with the rest of the course and then i read it and i quickly understood why we were reading it but anyway so the movie was was bad and i know that you have a couple of opinions yeah so i didn't and here's the thing i didn't see the movie i still plan to see it because it's i saw it. unfortunately i'm much like the mummy's curse i'm cursed with this in that in order to fully have an opinion on something 99.9% of the time, I have to go see the movie. There are certain exceptions to things I just will never see um, for whatever reason that are not pertinent to this episode. But if it's like, even if it's like a big Hollywood reboot, I kind of got to go, all right, I need to see what this is, even if I see it on video or streaming or whatever it is, and go, okay, so I can have my own understanding of it. But I'm glad this didn't work out because... The idea of them rebooting it felt very forced, and it just seemed like a studio that was so desperate to get the same attention that Disney was getting with all of the property they had acquired. The fact that the other cinematic universes Disney had created were doing so well. Around this time, I believe the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series was starting to become a thing and it was turning Harry Potter into another like a cinematic universe and then there was Star Wars had just come out two years prior the next film was coming out and they were establishing that universe Marvel was a few years away from Endgame at that point so it's also really ironic since Universal began the cinematic universe back in the 1920s and 30s without meaning to do so with all of the horror properties but I just it felt so like hey, uh, the kids like franchises, right? So we're going to do a franchise with it. No one asked for this. 
well, but it's you guys like this thing, right? It's like, no, you're missing the point completely. And it's an interesting meta sort of metaphor for the dangers of resurrecting something that shouldn't be resurrected. Ooh, that's a good tie into this. Um, but now, lastly, in terms of our legacy, the film has a permanent home at Universal's theme parks. Originally, after The Mummy Returns came out, there was an attraction that was placed called The Mummy Returns Chamber of Doom, which was basically a walkthrough attraction that at Universal Parks in Florida and Hollywood that puts you in the middle of the tomb where mummies and Imhotep's guardians would pop out at you. And, and unlike the Brendan Fraser a- scene, they were actually people there. So if you punched them, yeah. they got mad. This attraction was eventually replaced by a walkthrough attraction uh, called House of Horrors that takes people through every universal horror film all the way from Frankenstein to Chucky to whatever the fuck thing they create at the end that's like an offshoot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where it's standing (laughs) at the end of a hallway and waiting for you. And I would say two words. I love horror movies, but fuck no, because I have a story. I stood outside that thing because I was curious to see how people were doing it. I think I was on a trip with like my uh, with my parents when I was a teenager and we stopped at Universal. They're like, I'm going to go in the shop. I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I was like, cool, I'll wait here. And I'm watching people just kind of run out because you can hear like a chainsaw noise. And right. the guy walks out of the maze and he sees me. And he runs straight at me, and I was like, nope, going over here, going downstairs. Fuck that, dude. That's why you shouldn't even ever go anywhere near a maze, let alone in a maze. Nothing good happens in or near mazes. <laughs> but then came... The Shining, yeah. dude. The Goblet of Fire. Mazes are fucked yeah, up. Don't go exactly. in them. But then came one of my favorite roller coasters, I think, of all time, and it's called... Re- Gadget's Go Coaster. Uh, but no, uh, specifically, Revenge the Mummy, the ride. It's a high-speed roller coaster in the dark where you pass by spirits, mummies, pop-outs, a lot of special effects. It's really awesome. And it's kind of like what I think Indiana Jones would have been if it was a roller coaster. Um, it's it's insane. Okay. Um, specifically, I like the one that's in Universal in Orlando because it's a lot longer of a ride, whereas L.A. is pretty short. But it's still—both of them are rad. Like, I—they're still super awesome. I have never been to a Universal Studios, so I'm going to have to take your word for that. Okay, let's get into our reactions to close this out. Do we have any burning questions this week, or was this pretty— We do. We do, Jared. I have one burning question for you. Okay. And this is something that has been eating away at me since I watched this movie. I have thought about it every day. Okay. Since I watched this movie. All right. And one of the first things that the mummy does— when he is awakened is he kills that guy and he takes his eyes. But in the process of killing that guy and taking his eyes, he breaks that guy's glasses. Now the guy needed glasses for his eyes to work and those glasses don't exist, but the mummy Holy took shit. those eyes. So wouldn't the mummy be walking around the entire movie unable to see because he took shitty eyes and he doesn't have the glasses? I don't know the science behind that. I don't have anything for that. That's a It distracted me the entire fucking time. That's a time. great flaw. He stole eyes from a dude whose eyes didn't work. 
Holy shit, I never thought of that. So what the fuck? Wow. Huh. That's my question, is how how does it work? Why did it work? What the fuck? That's my only burning question, but I think it's going to bother me until the day it's I die. It's going to bother me too. If I ever get to talk to Steven Summers, <laughs> it would be like, dude, I have one fucking question for you. I know you got the the herringbone pattern right on the mummy stitching, <laughs> and I know you switched up the fucking acronyms on your books in the library, but you missed something. I want to say that this almost falls into just, well, it's a popcorn film. You take it for what it is, but that is a big flaw to point out. I, I refuse. <laughs> I refuse to take it for what it is. That, yeah, I, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll have to follow up on that at some point. That's really, really Wow, mine kind of blown. Interesting. It, it made me so fucking angry, Jared. I mm, yeah. Mm, mm. So other than that, what did you like and dislike about this film? <laughs> uh, honestly, other than that, like I liked almost everything. <laughs> like it's it, obviously it's a super fun movie. Um, I think Brendan Fraser is a great action hero. I I love how just nonchalant and silly he is about it. Um, I really, really enjoyed the way that they blended the comedy with the action and some scary stuff too. Like, I think it's a, it's a really good mix. I think it holds up really well. I I love the amount of care that went into making the CGI characters. Um, You know, you could tell watching the movie that for 1999, it looks spectacular. And a lot of the stuff still looks great. So I, I loved all that stuff. Um, As far as things that I didn't like, you know, I, I feel like looking back on that movie from, you know, 20 years later, there's a few problematic depictions of stereotypes and things like that, that, that I found a little bit difficult to deal with. Um, but talking about this as a movie, that doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with the writing or the plot or anything like that. So I, I, I don't have too much to say negative about it. I, I thought it was awesome. I'm, I'm upset with myself that I didn't watch it. I'm ago. glad you watched it. It's, I'm I'm very happy you saw it. Um, it's so my dis my only dislikes and these are more just little gripes. It's funny watching this movie now because I do feel like it's aged quite a bit in the sense that like a lot of this and that's not a slam at the movie. A lot of the CGI still really holds up incredibly well. Like particularly like the scarab crawling into his mouth and out like it. Oh my god, it's one of the coolest effects I've ever seen. But it's just that I guess there were a couple little things that just, I guess, didn't age as well as they could have for me. Some of the scarabs kind of look a little weird. But even then, that's like, if you're thinking of it at the time of 1999, this is incredible. It's groundbreaking. And it's awesome. They wouldn't have looked weird back then. No, not at all. You know what I mean? So I try to look at it from that lens Exactly. So it's a really minor gripe. I I think one of the things I would have loved, I would have loved more scares. Like, I love this movie exactly the way it is. I've said this before. It's one of my favorites. But if it played up the horror aspect more, considering how Imhotep looks, like, after that, like, moment when he wakes up and roars, holy shit, that would have been so cool. What's it say? Amunra. Amunde. It speaks of the night and of the day. No! You must not read from the book! My favorite parts of this movie, 
The casting of this film is perfect all the way down to Benny. I love everybody who is put in this movie. Jonathan is hysterical to me. I've said when I talked about that a little while back, so I'll just keep it there. Despite what we said about there being films that were kind of inspired by it, um, there are no films like this today. And what I mean is, yeah, it did spawn some creature films. It did spawn a number of things like that right after. They tried Van Helsing, but then Van Helsing didn't do well at the box office and it didn't have the same popcorn movie effect. So this adventure, big budget, self-deprecating kind of film, it's no longer present. If anything, I've seen more disaster-style films like Rampage... San Andreas, not coincidentally, both have the rock in them. I'm not trying to point out anything with him. He's made some very good films, um, but I see more disaster style films like that, or like Pompeii, where right. it, with uh, Kit Harrington years ago. Well, speak speaking of the rock, though, like the new Jumanjis are sort of big action adventure, yeah, self-deprecating so kind of movies. kind of like, yeah, I guess you could say that. I, I that's a good point. I guess you you also could look at something like I see studios will try to make something like Clash or Revenge of the Titans. Uh, while they're very beautiful to look at, like the costume designs and the set designs in those films are astounding. It doesn't have yeah. the humor. It doesn't have the schlockiness that this film does. I think it's fair to say that definitely the Jumanji is kind of revitalizing that but even or kong skull island have you seen kong i didn't skull see kong island? skull island that's kind of in this vein okay as well. i'll have to check those out then that'd be nice to see that again but um rampage yeah again it's the rock but yeah like i said i've seen more disaster style films like that but i i, I guess i don't see it in the same way maybe i'm just being nitpicky but the moment i knew that this would become one of my favorite movies is the moment when Rick meets Emotep for the first time. He turns around and he's like, he looks at Rachel and he's like, what's, or he looks at Evelyn and he's like, what's going on? Turns around, the mummy roars at him. And you'd think that he would scream and run away. He screams right back at him like he's mocking him. I know. And he just fucking shoots him. It's hysterical he and I laugh every single time. It's beautiful. Whoa! Evie! that is like he screams at him like not like he's trying to intimidate him but just like he doesn't know what else to yeah. do like it's almost like he's like frustrated yes like he's just like ah! <laughs> he just it's fucking goes the for moment it. i saw that because that's what i mean by it not being like another action film it wasn't like it panned to him and he goes oh my god the curse is real your stereotypical action hero kind of always knows what to do and and Rick almost seems like he never knows what to do, but he just kind of happens to do the right thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, like the part where he like shows the cat to him and shit. Like he just, he's, it's like this, he's clever, but he's also just like guessing and it's working. It, something I about love it. it. It's awesome. great. And finally, my last favorite part of this is. Just turn. 
I used to have a friend that would quote that movie and in particular that scene all the time and it always made me smile. It still does make me smile. Sim simpler times, much simpler times. And um, it's hysterical. So it's, this movie is always a very fun walk down uh, memory lane and a, just a, a great popcorn movie. Love it. Um, it's a good time. Yeah. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, it. man. We did it. Um, Dude, we did it. That was There was a lot to talk about in there this There was movie. a lot to talk about. And yeah. we didn't want to shortchange you guys by skipping over a bunch of no. shit. No, definitely not. So... It's 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 a long one. Yeah, it's it's a popcorn episode. You might want to do a, a couple of a couple of uh, breaks. Absolutely, in between. absolutely. <laughs> um, but what did you guys think of the Mummy? Did you enjoy it? Did you do you not agree with any of our criticisms? What either way, we want to know what you think. You can always email us at info or at um, you can always email us at nineteen ninety nine pod at gmail dot com. You can also find us at the Facebook and Twitter links in the description below. Next week, we're gonna watch our first romantic comedy of nineteen ninety nine, Notting Hill. Um, you can find it on HBO Max, HBO Go, and Hulu for streaming. You can also rent this film on YouTube, Google Play, Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, or wherever else you rent your films digitally. Be kind, rewind. We will see you guys next week for Notting Hill. Coming soon to theaters. A very ordinary boy oh! bumps into a girl oh my God. and takes her home. The bathroom's on the top floor. It happens all the time. But she is no ordinary girl. She is Anna Scott, the most famous film star in the world. And when they get together, everyone has something to say. Anna Scott, Anna Scott, Anna Scott. Hello, Anna. Scott. Hi, guys. Oh, Jesus, fuck. They always do that when I leave the house. This is a peculiarly strange person to have um, got involved with. It's not Fergie, is it? You must be Spike. Thank you, God. I don't want to interfere on the thing, but she's in your house. Yes. Well, isn't this perhaps a nice opportunity to... slip the one? Spike. But when two worlds collide... I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. And the news is bad. Tomorrow, there'll be pictures of you in every newspaper in your goddamn underwear. And getting worse. I went out in my goddamn underwear too. Get out. How does an ordinary boy... Let's stay calm. No, you can stay calm. ...keep the most famous girl in the world? The fame thing isn't really real. I'm also just a girl. Standing in front of a boy. Asking him to love her. You daft prick. The creators of Four Weddings and a Funeral invite you to join Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant in a place called Notting Hill. Um, I wouldn't go outside. 